Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is a special YouTube live stream being broadcast live Wednesday, June 27th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time. And I'll try to keep an eye on that and answer questions as they come up. Now, in this episode, I plan to cover the court's final week of opinions in which the court handed down opinions in six cases, including several pretty high-profile cases. Now, if you're listening to this, you're probably aware that earlier today, Justice Kennedy announced his retirement, effective July 31st. This is big news for the court, and the confirmation battle that's about to get started is undoubtedly going to get very ugly. It's going to be very contentious and hard-fought. There's a lot to say about this. There's a lot to say about Justice Kennedy's career on the court, about his potential successors and the court's future, and about the confirmation process itself. But unfortunately, that's not for tonight. I've just got too much material to cover already, and frankly, I just haven't had enough time to really process it and get my thoughts collected. So uh, for the for counting to five, Kennedy's retirement will have to wait. Um, but if you are watching live and have specific questions, feel free to ask them in the live chat and maybe I'll have some thoughts to share. But um, as I mentioned, there's a lot to cover here. So this episode is going to be focused solely on the opinions, not on other recent orders and other developments at the court. Now, tomorrow... That's um, Thursday, June twenty eighth. I'm going. I'm going to be doing another live stream. Uh, that's our, at the normal weekly time, Thursday at nine p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and my plan was to do a kind of a term wrap up and a look ahead to next year. Uh, I'm still debating whether I should try to tackle Kennedy's retirement um, too tomorrow. But in any event, please join me again tomorrow for this um, kind of term wrap up and look ahead uh, live stream. But now let's uh, let's get on to the opinions. So I mentioned that in this week, in this last week of the court's term, for, uh, term, the court handed down six opinions. There was two on Monday, two on Tuesday, two on Wednesday. Just briefly, here's what they were on. On Monday, there was Ohio v. American Express, and that's an uh, an antitrust action um, related to anti uh, to American Express's. Um, so-called anti-steering rules. Um, We'll talk about that more in a bit. Then there was also Abbott v. Perez, which was a case out of Texas about racial gerrymandering. On Tuesday, there was uh, Nifla v. Becerra. That's a case out of California about a uh, California law requiring um, crisis pregnancy centers to to, uh, give certain uh, disclosures. Um, and also on that day was uh, uh, Trump v. Hawaii. That's the travel ban litigation, the the, the um, Trump administration's um, policy barring entry into the country uh, from nationals from uh, from certain uh, foreign countries. And then finally today, this morning, Wednesday, June 27th, the court issued two cases. One is Georgia v. Florida. Now, this was a uh, interstate water dispute. This is kind of a highly technical case about uh, apportioning certain water between Georgia and Florida. But the other case, uh, the last uh, on this last day of the term, was Janice v. Ask Me. And this is the case about um, the constitutionality of union agency agency fees. Those are fees that unions charge to non-members. Um, to uh, cover the costs of uh, collective bargaining and other uh, union representational um, uh, duties. Um, and so I'm going to try and cover all six of those cases. Um, it, this, this, uh, I'll try and move pretty quickly through them, uh, 
But uh, again, if you have any questions and you're watching live, please feel free to ask them in the, the live chat. Now, the theme for this week, as you'll see as we go along, is five to four decisions. All six of the court's decisions this week were divided five to four. Now, it's not unusual for more of the closely divided cases to come down toward the end of the term. Um, the, the divided cases t- tend to take the court longer. There's more back and forth between the majority and dissent and sometimes multiple different opinions. So those, it's, it's, there's usually more unanimity earlier in the, in the term and more uh, sharp divisions late in the term. But it is unusual to end with just this string of five, four decisions. Um, and what's more, of these six, five to four decisions, five of them, fully five out of these six decisions split directly on the, along the, uh, stereotypical ideological lines with the uh, five more conservative justices in the majority and the four more liberal justices in the dissent. Now, you know, there, there's often, um, uh, you know, close uh, court watchers often warn people not to overstate the uh, the ideological divides on the court. There is a lot of unanimity. There's a lot of crossover voting. There's a lot of unusual alignments of justices in various cases. Um, but, there is a real division on the court, and this kind of just just really highlights that having five out of the six cases come that came down this week split along those those uh, those same lines, and uh, something significant, especially um, in light of uh, of, of uh, uh, Justice Kennedy's announced retirement, something that a lot of people have been noting this term. Uh, there's uh, in the, in the number of uh, five four decisions that were. Um, uh, issued by the court this term, there wasn't a single case that involved um, Justice Kennedy, uh, the five, the, where the, the five justices in the, in the majority were made up of Justice Kennedy plus the four liberal justices. Now, Justice Kennedy is, um, is considered the, the swing vote on the, on the court. He's, the, he's kind of the median justice if you're, if you're going to align, arrange, uh, arrange the justices in kind of a, uh, a linear fashion from, uh, liberal at one end to conservative, most liberal at one end to, to most conservative on the other. Kennedy is the one who falls in the middle of those nine justices. And, um, in some significant er- areas of the law, he has, he has sided with the more liberal justices, um, to, to give them a, 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 a victory in certain areas. Um, no, no ones are in uh, uh, certain abortion uh, cases and in um, uh, a, a recent uh, affirmative action case, um, but 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 this term uh, there, there was none of that. Um, in every single case uh, that split along those ideological lines, Kennedy sided with the other four more conservative justices, um, and that's unusual. In, in a typical year, it's it's uh, you know, closer to. Uh, you know, uh, two to one in terms of uh, siding with the conservative justices and siding with the liberal justices in 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 uh, in those closely divided uh, cases, but here here 100 percent of the time in this term. So it's just an interesting uh, trend uh, to to notice this year. Um, but now let's uh, let's just dive in and get started with the cases. So again, two cases on Monday. The first one I'm going to discuss is called Ohio v. American Express. And again, I mentioned this is an antitrust case. Now this case was one of those cases that divided five to four uh, along those uh, conservative liberal lines with Justice Thomas writing the majority uh, joined by the other conservative justices and Justice Breyer writing the dissent for the four liberal justices. Now the background of this case is um, it was an antitrust action that was brought by the United States and a number of individual states against American Express. And the the target of this is something known as um, the uh, anti-steering rules. And these are um, rules that anti- American Express uh, imposes on the merchants 
with whom it has contracts, the merchants that accept uh, American Express cards. And the, the, uh, the anti-steering rules prevent those merchants from taking any action to steer customers away from using American Express. So that would include uh, them just verbally encouraging customers to use a card other than American Express, but also in- includes um, practices like giving um, discounts or, or certain incentives uh, to customers who use a card other than American Express. Um, and this antitrust action was was brought uh, um, arguing that that's, uh, that's anti-competitive. Uh, behavior in violation of the Sherman Act. That's the major um, antitrust act. Um, and the specific issue here is is about how to analyze um, antitrust actions in in what's referred to as a, a two sided market. So um, the 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 argument here is that antitrust is partic- or American Express is participating in something known as a two sided market. There, what's referred to sometimes as a two sided platform. And what that means is that American Express stands in the middle of two separate markets. American Express has its relationships with merchants, so it, it, uh, it has merchant relationships, and it serves as as a uh, uh, it, it provides the um, payment services to to those merchants who accept American Express cards. And then on the other side, American Express has its relationship with the cardholders, and uh, it acts as an intermediary between these these um, two uh, sets. And the issue here is. Um, in the uh, antitrust cases, this and this is under Section One of the Sherman Act, and it deals with um, certain types of anti-competitive behavior. Here's here's the language of Section One. Uh, it refers to uh, it says, "quote Every contract, combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations is declared to be illegal." Now. Um, it's, this is extremely broad language referring to, um, every, uh, contract or combination in restraint of trade. And it's been interpreted over the, you know, more than a century, um, uh, as a, uh, as, as referring only, only to, uh, unreasonable, um, restraints of trade. And uh, the court has, uh, the court has developed rules that kind of categorize, classify these into two different types. Uh, there's some, um, types of restraints on trade are evaluated as they're, they're considered to be per se violations of antitrust law. They're automatically illegal if they're done. And this, this typically, uh, um, involves what are referred to as horizontal restraints. This means, um, agreements between direct competitors in the marketplace. So for example, agreements to fix prices or agreements to carve up the market so that two competitors aren't competing head to head. Um, the but uh many other types of restraints on trade are um, evaluated under something known as the rule of reason and this is this is kind of a a, a balancing test uh, where the court looks at pro competitive and and anti competitive effects and and balances these and that's usually used when we're dealing with what's known as vertical restraints so that's when um, for example two two different uh, there's an agreement between companies at different points in the the supply chain, for example, so between a manufacturer and a and a and a retailer, or something like that. Um, and these rule of reason cases are evaluated under a what's called a burden shifting framework. And the way this works is, the plaintiff, so whoever's alleging the antitrust violation. Um, here that would be the, the governments that are involved here, the state and federal governments that are involved here. They have the burden to first demonstrate that the, um, this, the restraint on trade has anti-competitive effects. Um, once they've made that showing, then the burden shifts to the defendant to show that in fact the arrangement has pro-competitive benefits. 
And then if they are able to do that, the burden shifts back to the plaintiff again to show that that pro-competitive benefit could have been achieved with less restraint on trade. So that, that's the, the, the basic framework of these rule of reason cases. Now, here's the issue here. Um, the, the, the argument is the, the district court in this case found that these anti-steering rules had a anti-competitive effect um, in the in the market for uh, the, the merchants, the, the merchants market for for um, uh, 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 card to deal with these uh, credit card companies. Um, the uh, American Express argued that this is the wrong way of looking at this because it's this special, this kind of two-sided market. Um, you can't show anti-competitive effects unless you look at both sides of that market. You have to look at the impact on a particular rule on both the merchant side and the customer side. The uh, this uh, at the Court of Appeals, it was the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. It, the Court of Appeals agreed with American Express and um, found that uh, that the plaintiffs had not met their burden of showing an anti-competitive effect because uh, the effect was not there when you look at both sides of this market. So that's the way this came up to the Supreme Court, this question of how do you evaluate these um, two-sided markets um, when you're when you're doing this rule of reason analysis. So just as Thomas wrote the majority opinion, and he starts just by discussing the basic facts uh, that he, um, uh, he argues are relevant about these two-sided markets. And one is that these two-sided markets have these in, are characterized by um, what are referred to as indirect network effects. And this is the idea that that um, that increasing one side of a two-sided market. So in this case, um, having a larger number of merchants who accept American Express cards is the benefit to the other side of the, the people on the other side of the market. So the cardholders, cardholders benefit when there are more vendors who accept American Express and the, the, the other, uh, other way around also applies. If there are more cardholders for a particular card, then that's more benefit, uh, flows to the merchants. So a merchant, uh, gets more benefit out of, uh, accepting a card if there are more cardholders. Um, and just uh, very briefly, there's a question here from Sam in the uh, in the live chat, and it says, "I'm assuming the rule of reason test is not in the Sherman Act, so was it formulated by the Supreme Court itself?" Yes, it was, and the the Sherman Act is often cited as as a uh, it's kind of the prime example of of uh, what's sometimes characterized as a, a common law statute. And the idea is the Sherman Law is stated in such kind of broad general terms that it doesn't really it doesn't really explain exactly what courts are supposed to do or exactly what is or is not a violation it's just ter- phrased in these very general terms about restraints on trade and as a result all of antitrust doctrine has has um, basically developed out of that just very you know a single sentence in the antitrust act is gets developed out of the case law over you know now more than well over a century um, into various tests to apply to various different types. So all these concepts of vertical restraints versus horizontal restraints and per se violations versus the rule of reason, all of that stuff is developed, developed in, uh, cases over, over the years and none of it comes directly out of the statute. Now this is contrasted with a lot of more modern statutes that have highly detailed, uh, regulatory regimes. They may spell out, you know, specific burdens of proof or evidentiary standards that have to be met and may, you know, give detailed specifications of things that are and are not allowed. Well, the, the Sherman Act is, is the polar opposite of that type of statute. So yes, so this has all been developed over the years. And, um, one thing that, that, you know, uh, people who are, um, proponents of, of, uh, the way antitrust law has developed, um, one, one thing they've pointed to is they've said that this kind of, um, flexibility 
in the antitrust law has allowed the court to um, to develop antitrust law, taking into account new. Uh, developments in economic thought over the years. So, um, antitrust law now is considered to be like far more economically sophisticated than it was, um, maybe 50 years ago because, uh, there's just been so much, uh, scholarship on, um, competition and all the, uh, the, the factors that, that, um, are important for, for antitrust. And these have kind of made their way into, um, legal, uh, discourse and into court rulings. So that's, uh, um, that's an argument on on uh, for that kind of uh, approach on that side. There's arguments against it, obviously. Um, and oh, and Sam follows up. So should we we should think of antitrust cases like tort cases? Well, in a sense, yeah, because uh, you know, traditionally tor- tort law, and and this is you know still the case to a, a large degree, tort law is developed by the uh, by the the courts. It's it's mostly judge made law. Um, it's, it's, uh, common law. Now that, you know, this isn't always true. Sometimes legislatures step in and, and will set certain rules and overrule certain decisions of the court. Um, but it, it, in the main, it's developed over time by judges in court decisions and antitrust law, um, even though it's uh, derives its, you know, its authority from this statute that dates back to 1890. Um, it's, it's the actual doctrine and the development has been largely, uh, done in a, uh, uh, a common law method, a case by case development by judges. So, yeah. Um, so back to the, the case, um, it, it, there's these indirect network effects in two sided markets. So benefits, uh, increasing the participants in one side of the market benefits, uh, participants in the other side of the market and the platform. So the platform in this case, that would be American express. They're the intermediary between these two sides. The platform has to take into account both sides of this market when it's, um, when it's doing things like pricing its services. And often in these two side of sided markets, it will treat the two sides of the market differently because there's different price elasticity in, in the two sides. The one side or the other may be more sensitive to price changes. Um, and in some cases, uh, one side of that two-sided market um, may even be uh, uh, subsidized to a heavy degree um, beca- because uh, the platform is able to um, get a lot of uh, earnings revenue out of one side of the transaction, provide that subsidization to the other side of the uh, of the market, and then the benefits flow back to the first side by the increased participation in, in the one side. So that's the the basic the basic argument here is that. Both sides of this market have to be taken into account because of this unique, um, uh, the, these unique effects that flow across the two-sided market. Um, and then the argument here is that that's that's what happens here, according to American Express. Um, the the uh, money they make from the merchant side, and that's that's the bulk of their their revenue comes from the merchant side. Um, that allows them to subsidize the uh, cardholder side by providing various um, benefits and rewards to cardholders. Um, but that, that uh, according to American Express, the merchants ultimately benefit by the because those benefits that are provided to the cardholders um, increase the number of people who want to uh, hold and own and use American Express cards, which uh, flows back to the uh, the benefit to merchants who accept American Express by having this larger cardholder base. Um, that's that's the the you know basic idea here, um, and the the uh, so the the argument um, by by Justice Thomas is that um, when when you're defining an anti-competitive effect, so that's the step one of this rule of reason burden shifting, um, it, it's essential to first define the relevant market. 
and the relevant market is is the the area of effective competition. Now, um, in in certain markets, th- this just means figuring out who are the direct competitors. So, if you have a particular product, what are the substitutes for that product? What are the other things that that are being traded off against it? Um, but the uh, in this case, with a, with a two-sided market, um, Thomas's argument here is that the relevant market, the market that's actually being participated in by American Express, is this two-sided market, um, and that, that that whole two-sided market needs to be um, taken into account. Um, and he, he he makes several kind of economic arguments uh, about uh, evaluating um, things that the prices and things that happen in these two two-sided markets, um, and. Uh, one argument is basically the product here um, shouldn't be viewed as one side of this in isolation. So the product isn't just the uh, the payment services provided to a merchant by American Express. The product is the entire transaction from going from a cardholder through American Express to a merchant. That entire transaction is uh, a jointly consumed product by the merchant and cardholder. So it's necessary to look at the total costs of that entire transaction, not just the costs on one side of that transaction due to the uh, two-sided nature of these markets. Um, and he says that the, the in this case, the plaintiff's entire um, anti-competitive case is based on the increased merchant fees that are uh, um, enabled by the anti-steering rules. Um, but Thomas says that, that what, they, what the plaintiffs have failed to show is evidence um, uh, that the, there would be a higher overall price for transactions in total, um, or that the, that the, that the overall price for transactions is higher than it would have been absent these anti-steering rules. Um, and he responds to the, uh, a counter argument that these higher merchant fees are not completely offset by, um, uh, higher spending on benefits on cardholders. Um, so that would suggest that the total cost of these transactions has risen, um, but he points out that the total volume of transactions has also increased and uh, argues that under under uh, uh, the economic theory says that when there's a rising price, but there's also rising output, so more more total transactions happening, that's consistent with a demand-driven expect, explanation that, that just demand is increasing and the rising price and output are, are, are a result of that demand and not evidence of um, – of, uh, of market power um, being being used to uh, by American Express, um, and he, he also argues that there's no evidence here that competition in this space has been stifled. He says that there's evidence that there's expanded output um, and improved quality in the marketplace, increased availability of credit cards, and the competition has 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 in fact periodically forced American Express to lower its merchant fees. Um, and also that Visa and MasterCard have competed for merchants on the basis of, of lower fees. So he says there's a very competitive market here. Um, and, uh, and, and then uh, further goes on to, to talk about the anti-steering rules, um, particularly and says that there's nothing inherently anti, anti-competitive about those anti-steering rules because they address um, a negative externality caused by um, merchants steering customers away. And the, the general idea is that if a cardholder um, finds themselves being um, steered away from using a particular card by a merchant, a merchant is trying to discourage them from using a particular card, then that causes these spillover effects where the cardholder will be wary of using the card elsewhere because they don't want that um, that unwelcome or that, that uncomfortable experience of, of uh, being uh, 
uh, steered away from it by the uh, the merchant, and that's an, an externality caused by um, merchant steering. And so this is a, a legitimate means of trying to combat that externality. And so uh, the the conclusion by Thomas is that the plaintiffs failed to meet their burden under the step one of the burden shifting framework. And so there's no um, uh, under the rule of reason they haven't they haven't uh, um, showed an antitrust violation. So the dissent is by Justice Breyer. He agrees that the rule of reason three step you know, burden shifting framework is the, is the uh, right approach here. Um, but he disagrees uh, very strongly with uh, the majority's uh, um, analysis, the way they, they went about it. Um, and he, he points out that the, um, the, 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 the practice of steering, the practice of merchants giving incentives or benefits uh, to use one card over another, that practice allows price competition to occur at the uh, the merchant um, level, it allows uh, because normally um, customers are completely oblivious to the merchant fees. They're nor- they're entirely hidden, and a customer doesn't have any incentive to take that into account when choosing to use one card over another. And so, uh, the practice of steering allows price competition um, at the register, um, and so that's good for competition in general. And he points, uh, Breyer points to some of the district court's factual findings, the fact that American Express repeatedly raised merchant fees and and uh, apparently had no concern about losing customers due to anti-steering rules, um, uh, be, uh, because anti-steering rules would, would, uh, would kind of prevent customers from, uh, from choosing other cards due to merchant fee increases because they wouldn't feel um, that, uh, that increase. And in fact, uh, American Express didn't really lose any major merchants or, or, or significantly increase its cardholder benefits when it raised merchant fees. And that kind of demonstrates American Express's market power. Um, he also pointed to the experience of Discover, another uh, competitor in the credit card space. And Discover had attempted to market itself on the basis of low fees by encouraging merchants to engage in steering toward its low fee cards. Um, but this was effectively blocked by American Express's anti-steering rules. Um, and the district court found that there were no offsetting benefits to consumers of this uh, um, anti-steering practice. So the conclusion in the district court was that, that, that there was no incentive now to compete on low fees. Consumers see higher prices. They have no, in, they don't receive any of the benefits they would have received potentially from being steered. So any uh, incentives merchants would have offered them to, to go to a, uh, a lower cost card. And so Breyer says that should be enough to meet the burden under step one. That's, that's enough. But he goes on uh, to discuss a little more about the, the majority's uh, two-sided market, um, um, discussion and 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 uh, he he makes a, a couple arguments. One he says is that this concept uh, is 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 too broad. Um, that there's uh, so many different markets that can be characterized as two sided markets, and that this this is just a, a much too um, broad of a, uh, of a of a classification. Um, and uh, he he says that he he points out that this is just not a category that the Supreme Court has dealt with before. Two sided markets are, are are not something that appears in any of the Supreme Court's antitrust cases, um, and he he doesn't see why it should be treated any differently than any business that's involved in multiple different markets. Uh, the two services there are not substitutes, so card card uh, um, cardholder benefits or or the the service provided to cardholders and the service provided to merchants are not substitutes for each other. So they're not competing in the market. So there's no reason that you need to lump them together in a single market. Um, and he also argues that the majority's version of a two-sided market uh, differs from the way economists typically um, discuss two-sided markets. Um, and 
the majority's definition is, 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 uh, according to Breyer, quite a bit broader than the way economies, um, usually, uh, economists usually deal with it. And economists say that the relevance of a two-sided market, um, it differs, uh, from case to, uh, case to case. It's a very, uh, um, case dependent, uh, how the two-sided market will affect, uh, market power and competition. And, uh, so he says that the fact that something is a two-sided market just doesn't provide any justification for always having to, um, lump both sides of the market together for antitrust purposes. Um, but then he, he argues further that the, the burden here um, was met even under the majority's market definition. He says that the increased merchant fees without a corresponding increase in cardholder ben- benefits uh, that is enough to show that there was a uh, that there was an anti-competitive effect. Um, he says the majority's argument that that this uh, this was equally plausibly caused by increased demand in the market. So demand is an explanation for both the in- for the increased. Um, costs. Uh, Breyer argues that says that if this if this is the justification, then then it makes um, it makes it effectively impossible uh, in in a situation where demand is increasing to prove an antitrust violation. Um, and so he he believes that that Ameri- you know he says American Express should he thinks that the burden has been met to show that there's an anti-competitive effect. He thinks American Express should still be able to argue that there's a pro-competitive benefit under step two of the balancing test, though he thinks that's a pretty high burden um, because he, he thinks that uh, American, it's usually you, you can't be allowed to trade off a harm in one ben- market for a benefit in the other. So the fact that um, consumers uh, cardholders may be benefited by these arrangements um, doesn't make up for the fact that merchants are harmed by those same um, uh, be- uh, those same uh, policies. Um, and he also he argues that uh, the majority basically ignored the district court's factual findings against American Express on the pro-competitive benefits. Um, so that's that's it for Ohio of uh, the American Express. Let's move on to the next case. This is Abbott v. Perez, and this is a Case out of Texas uh, about um, racial gerrymandering, or more broadly, uh, uh, challenges to um, to uh, the use of race in uh, in districting. And this again was another um, five to four conservative conservative liberal split. So with uh, Justice Alito writing the majority for the five conservatives, Justice Thomas concurring, joined by Justice Gorsuch, and then Justice Sotomayor with the dissent. Um, joined by the other uh, liberal justices. Now, this was two consolidated cases that were challenging Texas electoral maps. One was about uh, federal congressional districts and the other was about state house districts. But the issues are, are uh, very uh, largely, they're overlapping largely the same. And the basic history in this case is this. In 2011, Texas enacted new electoral maps following the 2010 census. Now, these maps were um, almost, almost immediately challenged uh, in court, and there was various allegations of uh, racial gerrymandering, use of un- impermissible use of race in districting. Now, in 2012, the litigation was ongoing, um, but the the district court ended up drawing an interim map for use in the 2012 election. Um, that interim map was based on the 2011 map. It carried some districts over directly from that map, but it made other changes to cure various um, pro- problems with the map that had, by, that had been identified in the litigation. Um, so that 2012 interim map was used for the 2012 election. Now, in 2013, the Texas legislature adopted that 2012 interim court plan as the, the new map going forward. 
And that was the, that's the map that's been used in Texas since 2013. Now the litigation, the litigation that started back in 2011 continued. And finally in 2017, the district court held that the 2013 plan, um, was, uh, was, was impermissibly, um, uh, race based. Uh, it was, it was, it was the impermissible use of, uh, race, race in districting. And, and the, the decision was in part because the 2013 plan was, uh, tainted by the impermissible race, racial motives, um, involved in the 2011 plan. And there were challenges to a number of districts on the basis of um, the, the, those impermissible race, racial motives, uh, that, that, uh, were involved in the 2011 plan and the argument was that those motives carried through, uh, into the 2012 district, uh, interim plan adopted by the court, which was later adopted by the state. Um, but there were also some specific challenges made to certain districts, uh, under the Voting Rights Act. Um, now this case also had a jurisdictional issue. Um, this was heard by a three, three judge um, district court panel. That's how these redistricting cases are heard. Instead of a single judge at the district court level, they're heard by a three-judge panel. Now, the Supreme Court can hear appeals from these three-judge panels, direct appeals, um, when those panels grant or deny an injunction. But here what happened is that district court declared the maps invalid, but didn't explicitly enter an injunction. So didn't issue an order saying that the state could not use the, the existing map going forward. It just said that they were invalid and said that it needed to, they needed to be remedied. Um, now Texas appealed to the Supreme Court, uh, arguing that this is functionally an injunction, that, that by, by saying that these maps were invalid and a remedy needed to be made, it is functionally, uh, acted as an injunction and that should be good enough. Um, because it effectively prevented Texas from using the maps and requires it to draw up new maps before the next election. Um, so, so that's the jurisdictional issue, but then there's also the issue, uh, the, the, the issue on the, the actual, um, uh, redistricting the, on the merits of it. The, the, there's an argument about the discriminatory intent present in the 2011 districting and whether that, uh, carries through to the 2013 map. The argument on the other side was that the legislatures were expressly relying on district court's rulings in 2012 when the when the interim map was was created that that map was had been made to comply with certain legal requirements so it was reasonable for the 2013 legislature to adopt that map uh to avoid future litigation and and take something that had already kind of been blessed by the court um so that's kind of the, the arguments on the two sides and now uh justice alito writes the opinion for the majority and he um holds finds uh sides with texas uh for the most part except for one district which i'll which i'll, I'll come back to at the end but um, he, he basically says that the, the, um, the, the district court kind of reversed the burden of proof. He said that the burden is on the challengers to the map to show that the 2013 legislature acted with discriminatory intent. It's not the state's burden to, to show that they have somehow, um, cured whatever taint existed from the 2011 legislature's actions. Um, now, there, there, the, on the jurisdictional question first, whether this could, um, uh, whether the Supreme Court could hear this at all due to the, uh, the, the lack of a formal injunction. Justice Alito argued that, that under court's precedence, um, orders that are effectively in, uh, injunctions, um, those can be, uh, treated as injunctions for purpose, purposes of these appeals. And he talks about, there's two, two separate provisions, um, that are at issue here. One is a provision, uh, that's known as 1292A1. And that's the, um, 
that's a, a provision that applies in, in most um, district court actions that allows an appeal of an injunction, uh, the grant or denial of an injunction to the court of appeals uh, in most cases. But there's a separate provision. This is uh, uh, section 1253. And this is a provision that allows the appeal of these three judge district court rulings, uh, an injunction, grant or denial of injunction in those cases directly to the Supreme Court. Now, the first provision I referred to the, that allows the uh, most most cases to appeal uh, be appealed to the Court of Appeals, that has an exception. Uh, it doesn't apply when there's this direct appeal available to the Supreme Court. Now, there are cases under 1292A1, that's the one about the normal um, appeals up to the Court of Appeals, that say where, there's, where an order has the practical effect of denying an injunction, it can be appealed. And Justice Alito basically says the same thing should apply to 1253. They're very similar statutes. They have very similar language. So the same thing should apply. And he also points out um, uh, one uh, what he regards as, as a strange, a strange anomaly. If you didn't treat it the same, if you said that this kind of practical, um, uh, practical injunction, something practically equivalent to an injunction, if that wasn't enough to meet the, uh, the requirements of 1253 to get this um, direct appeal up to the Supreme Court, um, but it was enough to to meet 1292A1, well, the exception for things that are available, appealable directly to the Supreme Court wouldn't apply because you've just said 1253 didn't apply. So this would be appealable up to the Court of Appeals. So you'd have a strange situation where um, Congress has said that these three-judge cases, when there's an injunction or grant, grant or denial of an injunction, these three-judge district courts should go straight to the Supreme Court. But in this subset of cases where this is practically equivalent to an injunction cases, you'd you'd have that instead going to the Court of Appeals anyway, because it didn't, you say it's not enough of an injunction to go to the Supreme Court, but it's still enough of an injunction to appeal under this other provision. And, they, and he says that would just be anomalous. And there's no way Congress could have meant that to happen. Um, and so he says that these orders, they, they meet this practical test. They found a violation. They declared that it must be remedied, ordered the state to attend remedial hearings in order to, uh, to consider how to remedy the, uh, situation. Um, and, um, so it, it, he, he said basically it was understood by the people involved that this kind of effectively barred the use of the existing, uh, map in the, in the upcoming election. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, Justice Alito goes on to discuss the, the, the core, the merits issue in this case. The, the, he talks about the, the taint involved in the 2011 map. And he says, first of all, the legislature here is referring to the 2013 legislature. They, there's, there's a presumption of good faith involved in their actions. You presume that they're acting in good faith and, and the burden is to show evidence that they're not. Now the 2013 legislature didn't adopt the 2011 plan. Instead, they adopted this court-drawn plan that was designed to cure legal defects in the 2011 plan. So it's the 2013 legislature, legislature's intent that's relevant here. Um, the 2011, the, the intent behind the 2011 um, uh, map, the creation of the 2011 map, um, that, that, that's, that's relevant um, toward inferring the intent in 2013, but he says that the record here is just not sufficient to show that there was bad faith by the 2013, um, 2013 legislature. Um, he said the only direct evidence of the, the, uh, motives in 2013 was, uh, was a desire to, uh, to end prolonged litigation over these, um, these district redistricting maps. And that was, uh, uh, uh there was a legitimate, um, uh, motive by the legislature to want to uh, to put an end to that that uh, 
um, litigation. And so, um, so that's he kind of resolves that issue like that, and then he goes on to talk about four specific districts that were challenged on other grounds, not challenged just because of the uh, this invidious intent behind the 2011 map, but challenged because of specific problems with those districts. Three of the districts were challenged under what's known as the um, effects test under the Voting Rights Act, and that's basically the idea is that the effect of a district is to um, uh, basically dilute the uh, the power of a the voting strength of a minority. Um, community. Um, and he, he engages in kind of a fact-intensive examination of those districts, which I'm not going to go into here. And, and he concludes that there, in fact, was no Section 2 violation in those. Now, the fourth district, that one was challenged as a racial gerrymander. Um, and that was when uh, Latino and black voters were deliberately drawn into a particular district. Um, Texas had argued that they needed to do this to comply with um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That's that um, the effects test one uh, that uh, they thought they needed to do it to, to not um, dilute the uh, voting strength of those, uh, those minority communities. Um, but Alito concludes that Texas failed to, um, to demonstrate that this was actually necessary to comply with the voting rights act. So this was an impermissible racial, racial gerrymander. So that's the majority in that case. Now, just as Thomas had a concurrence and he, he can, in his concurrence, he restates, this is a view he's expressed in the past, he, he believes that the Voting Rights Act actually doesn't even apply to redistricting. And the language in the Voting Rights Act is uh, that it deals with voting, uh, this is, it deals with things pertaining to voting qualifications or prerequisites to voting or standard practice or procedure. And he says that redistricting is not one of those things. It just doesn't fall into those categories. So because of that, the Voting Rights Act, the compliance with the Voting Rights Act can never be used to justify racial gerrymandering. Um, so that, that's the argument that, uh, that Alito rejected in this case. So Thomas, Thomas agrees. He says, he says the majority reaches the same result he would have. And the majority's opinion is consistent with the court's existing precedent. So he joins the majority, but he would go further and just say that the Voting Rights Act compliance can never be used to justify a racial gerrymander. Now, Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent in this case. And she first argues the jurisdictional point. She says that there was no jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court, in these three judge district court cases, the Supreme Court has mandatory appellate jurisdiction. That means it doesn't have a choice whether to take these cases or not. If there's jurisdiction in these cases uh, and, and somebody files an appeal, the court has to take that appeal. Now, she says that there's longstanding uh, precedent in the Supreme Court that the court has to construe these type of appeals under the, the, the mandatory appellate jurisdiction narrowly or else the court will be flooded with cases it has no control over. Um, and and she says that that um, the, 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 there's she refers to a previous case that the court decided that involved redistricting where the district court had left time for the state political branches to act rather than imposing an injunction and the court held that there was no injunction therefore there was no jurisdiction for the appeal um, and she further argues that the 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 the, the other provision 1292a1 the 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 provision that allows for appeals to the court of appeals she says the precedents uh, allowing these practical injunctions, appeals on those, shouldn't apply because the Supreme Court's mandatory jurisdiction is just a different context. Uh, it's an, ex- an exceptional context. There's no general right to appeal to the Supreme Court, um, and so the, the court shouldn't just uh, carry that rule over. Um, 
And she says here there, there was there was no evidence that the district court was manipulating the, his order or, or, or the order or evading Supreme Court review in some way. It's just the normal practice of district courts to to separate uh, the uh, finding of a violation with the remedial phase, and that's what had been done here. Um, and and this appeal in her in her view was was premature because there's important determinations about remediability that hadn't yet been decided by the district court. Um, and she argues further that administrative simplicity, so bright line rules, so people know where a case can be, what you know, which courts have jurisdiction. That's essential to jurisdictional rules, and the court here kind of muddies it up by allowing these practical equivalents to uh, to uh, injunctions. So then she goes on to to talk about the um, the, the merits ca- issue about about. Um, the uh, discriminatory intent involved in these maps. And she says the district court did not shift the burden like the majority claims it did. Instead, the district court was was applying correct legal standard. Now, um, Justice Sotomayor kind of reviews the history of the of this map and of the, the legislature's um, uh, districting process in some detail. And she accuses the majority of not giving proper deference to the district court's factual determinations. Um, the, the, the district court is supposed to, uh, there's supposed to be a, a great degree of deference to district court factual findings. The, the, the uh, Supreme Court is only supposed to overturn them if they're clearly erroneous. And even if there is, uh, if the district court applied the wrong legal standard, so if, if the district court had, in fact, shifted the burden impermissibly from what it should have been, the correct, rem- correct remedy should be to uh, remand the case back to the district court to have it decided under the correct standard. Um, and so she complains the court failed to, to do that here. Now, she argues that the uh, the history shows and, and the district court's, um, district court's decision defects in the 2011 map that were carried over into the 2012 interim map and the 2013 legislature legislature was aware of those defects but just took no um, and also the 20 in, in adopting the 2012 interim map the district court had explained that its analysis had been expedited it was curtailed it had only made preliminary conclusions and it might revisit those conclusions uh, later so the, the she's basically saying the 2013 um, legislature had no reason to think that that 2012 map w- had cured all the problems or that it should insulate them from um, things that were uh, uh, impermissibly done in the 2011 map. Um, and then she goes on. So, so a- after concluding, that's about the, 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 uh, the map issue, the 2011, 2013 map issue. She goes on to discuss the individual districts and she engages in her own fact intensive analysis of the three districts challenged under the effects test. And again, accuses the majority of not giving appropriate deference to district court fact findings. And she would have found um, that all of them were um, violations of the voting rights act. Um, she doesn't address the fourth district where the majority found the racial gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering, presumably, um, she uh, agrees with uh, the court's finding in that particular district. So that moves me on to the next case I'm going to discuss. And this is a case called National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA for short, v. Becerra. And again, this is our third case. That's a five to four conservative liberal split. This time, Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion for the conservatives. Justice Kennedy also wrote a concurrence joined by uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito and Gorsuch. And Justice Breyer wrote a dissent for the four liberal justices. Now, this is a case about a, it's a First Amendment challenge to California's FACT Act. 
And the FACT Act is a, is a California law that imposes certain disclosure requirements on uh, things that are known as crisis pregnancy centers. And these are um, pro-life centers that, among other things, um, counsel women about uh, alternatives to abortion. Now, um, the, uh, there are two categories of these centers that are involved in, uh, in, in this litigation and in the California's FACT Act. There's what are referred to as licensed um, uh, clinics and unlicensed clinics. Now, the, the licensed clinics are, me, are actual medical facilities. They provide various services, including prenatal, prenatal medical care, pregnancy testing, prenatal vitamins, ultrasound examinations, other clinical services like that. Um, notably, uh, the, these crisis pregnancy centers, they don't provide uh, contraception or abortion-related services. Um, then the other category, these unlicensed um, clinics, they provide uh, over-the-counter pregnancy test kits, maternity clothing, baby supplies, parental uh, education programs, things like that. But they don't um, provide medical services that need a licensed medical provider to provide. So those are the two categories of centers. Now, California's Reproductive Fact Act um, has two separate disclosure requir- um, requirements applying to these different types of centers. The requirement for licensed um, uh the licensed clinics is they have to have a disclosure, and this is the language of the disclosure. Quote, California has public programs that provide immediate, free, or low-cost access to comprehensive family planning services, including all FDA-approved methods of contraception, prenatal care, and abortion for eligible women. To determine whether you qualify, contact the county social services office at, and then a phone number for the appropriate county. Um, and this uh, this disclosure has to either be provided to patients uh, directly or posted conspicuously in large type in the waiting room. Um, and so the, 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 the crisis pregnancy centers object to this because they say they're being forced to, uh, basically advertise abortion services, which go directly counter to their mission and the whole purpose, uh, for these, uh, these, uh, pregnancy centers to exist. Um, now the, the unlicensed, uh, centers have a, a different uh, requirement. They're required to uh, have a disclaimer that says, quote, the facility is not licensed as a medical facility by the state of California and has no licensed medical provider who provides or directly supervises the provision of services. And this has to be posted in several places. Um, and it also has to be um, uh, has to be included on any advertisement uh, that the, the crisis pr- pregnancy center uh, has. And it has to be included in, in a, a large of uh, a, a, a type size that's equi- uh, equal to the type size of the other um, language on the advertisement. And um, it has to be in uh, what are called threshold languages. So there's a language spoken by a, a certain significant number of people, uh, which varies by county, but it could be up to 13 different languages um, in Los Angeles County. Now um, that's the, that's the basic idea of the, 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 the requirements imposed by the FACT Act on these two different types of clinics. And another fact that was um, uh, that, that comes up that, that was uh, highlighted by the challengers to this was that there was exemptions uh, for certain type, other types of facilities, notably facilities that participate in California's uh, what's called the Family Pact Program. And that California participation in that program requires the provision of contraceptive uh, services. So um, the the argument is that this by by exempting those facilities, um, it, it effectively only included um, these the the pro life centers uh, under the uh, the coverage of this um, the, these uh, these disclosure requirements. 
So Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion. Um, and he says, uh, he, he starts with dealing with the, the licensed facilities. And he says this, this compelled notice, the notice they have to post about the availability of abortion services, uh, is a type of, uh, it's a compelled speech and it's a type of con, he, what he classifies as content-based speech regulation. And the first thing he does is he rejects the idea that there's a special category for purposes of First Amendment, um, uh, First Amendment case law, a special category for professional speech. Um, he says that this should just, there's, there's no special category that gets a lesser protection just because something is professional speech. Now he says there's a few categories of speech that by professionals that, um, that, uh, gets a more deferential treatment. Um, but it's, but it's only certain very specific types of professional speech. One is what he, he calls the disclosure, disclosure of factual non-controversial information in commercial speech. And that's uh, something that comes from a case uh, called Zouderer. It's referred to as the Zouderer standard. Uh, and he says that's limited to purely factual and uncontroversial information about terms of of service. So uh, the, the terms related to the services actually being provided. Um, but he says here the notice doesn't relate to the services the clinics actually perform. They they, they give these um, prenatal type services. They don't perform abortions. So the notice isn't related to that. It's about separate state services that the state wants to provide. And then he goes on. The second category is the regulation of professional conduct that incidentally burdens speech. Um, and that is, is, is um, uh, Justice Thomas Class's uh, informed consent laws under under this and and uh, these informed consent laws um, include uh, ones related to abortion and these that were upheld in uh, the Supreme Court case Planned Parenthood v Casey uh, among the regulations that are, were at issue in that case were um, uh, informed consent type requirements that required um, doctors to provide certain information to patients that were uh, going to uh, um, uh, have abortions and uh, he says that these are justified. Uh, as a requirement to 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 uh, to give information about a procedure that's going to be performed, they're justified as part of the general practice of medicine. Um, but here, the notices involved aren't tied to any particular medical procedure being performed. But he says, besides those those special categories, professional speech is otherwise just protected First Amendment speech. Um, this prevents the government from engaging in viewpoint suppression. It, it's important, he, he says, uh, candor is important in professional relationships and this protects the marketplace of ideas to allow uh, competing um, conceptions of, of what's the of uh, of the uh, um, the right thing to do or the right speech and, and he also says that, that a limitation based on professional speech would be difficult to cabin it would just it could range too it's hard to draw a line around that and in in various lower court cases a huge range of different jobs have been treated as professional speech and given lesser protection. And this includes not only doctors and lawyers and nurses, but also truck drivers, bartenders, and barbers have been classed as professionals for purposes of, of giving them a lesser protection. And so Justice Thomas says that just this is just, uh, there's no, it, uh, it, that, that goes, uh, there's no good, uh, um, it's difficult line drawing or hard to cabinet to, uh, to narrow class. Um, so he says, that um, the disclosure requirement here has to fail. He says the stated interest of the state uh, is to provide low-income women with information about state-sponsored services. But he says here it's wildly under-inclusive. He says that, that the requirements, they don't cover any of the nearly 1,000 community clinics that deal with low-income individuals, doesn't cover federal clinics or any of the California family-packed providers. 
Um, so, so the under-inclusiveness, he says, under the court's First Amendment precedents, it raises doubts about the stated interest. Um, and he says that there, the, the, uh, state didn't consider alternatives like, for example, a public information campaign and California provided no evidence that this would be ineffective. Um, so he finds that, uh, that, that, uh, the, the standard is this is, um, the challengers are, are likely to succeed on the merits. That's the standard. This, this came to the Supreme Court on, as a, a preliminary injunction. Um, the challengers were seeking a preliminary injunction to block the enforcement of this, um, the uh, FACT Act uh, disclosure requirements. And so he, he finds that they've met their burden of uh, that they're likely to su- succeed on the merits, so are entitled to an injunction. So then he goes on to deal with the unlicensed clinics and the notice they have to they have to, they have to provide, and he says assuming that this falls under the Zouderer standard, so that's the um, the providing uh, um, non controversial factual information. He he says uh, even under that standard, uh, disclosure requirements can't be unjustified or unduly burdensome. They have to address a real harm. They can't be broader than are reasonably necessary. And he says California's justification here was to ensure that pregnant women know that they're not dealing with licensed professionals. But he says California has provided no evidence that this lack of understanding exists. He says that some of the services that trigger um, being covered by the this notice requirement include things like having volunteers who collect health information, advertising um, the, uh, for pregnancy options counseling, and offering over-the-counter pregnancy testing. And he says things like these are not things that someone would expect to be uh, necessarily provided by a licensed medical professional. Um, so, so California hasn't adequately shown that this justification is, is needed, um, in this context. Um, so, uh, he, he said that this is, this would be, um, likely to, uh, the, the plaintiffs, the challengers in this case are likely to succeed in defeating California's justification here, though he leaves it open for California to provide more evidence, um, as the case goes forward. Um, he also talks about, uh, the undue burden that this is, this is unduly burdensome. He says the fact that it exempts unlicensed providers of contraceptives, um, makes this suspect. So, so, uh, Clinics that provide contraceptives are exempted from this, and speaker-based laws, he says, they're suspect because they 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 su- suggest that um, that the favored speakers are being left unburdened uh, to deliberately impose this uh, this uh, increased burden on the disfavored speakers. Um, and he also talks about the advertising requirements. Uh, which require a 29-word verbatim statement in the same or larger type as the ad language, and up to in up to 13 languages, depending on the county, and just uh, says that this is um, uh, extremely burdensome. He, he he expresses no view on similar disclosure, a similar disclosure that's better supported by evidence or less burdensome. Um, but he thinks that the preliminary injunction should be um, should be imposed here. Now, Justice Kennedy um, had a concurrence in this case. He joined the majority in full, but also uh, had a uh, concurrence. And he addresses first uh, what he views as the apparent viewpoint discrimination involved in this case. He says that the the argument wasn't fully developed here, so he agrees uh, not to decide it in this case. But he says that it raises a serious constitutional concern. And here's a few quotes. He says, quote, The state requires primarily pro-life pregnancy centers to promote the state's own preferred message advertising abortions. And and further later, he says, quote, the history of the act's passage and its under-inclusive application suggest a real possibility that these individuals were targeted because of their beliefs. And he specifically um, 
he is very critical of language used by the state in enacting this act, saying that it was a forward-thinking uh, piece of legislation. And he, he responds to that saying, quote, it is not forward-thinking to force individuals to be an instrument for foster, fostering public adherence to an ide- ideological point of view they find unacceptable. And he goes on to say, quote, governments must not be allowed to force persons to express a message contrary to their deepest convictions. Freedom of speech secures freedom of thought and belief. This law imperils those liberties. So he writes, it's relatively short, but a uh, very um, kind of strident uh, uh, First Amendment uh, uh, opinion um, concurring with the, the majority. So that brings me to the dissent, and this is by Justice Breyer. Now, Justice Breyer criticizes the majority's characterization of the disclosure as content-based speech regulation. He says that this is just uh, too broad. If you if you took took that literally, virtually every disclosure law everywhere would be a content based speech regulation, subject to this extremely high um, First Amendment uh, standard. And um, many of those uh, very common types of disclosure requirements wouldn't fall within the exceptions that the majority discussed about uh, speech that's related to provision of goods or services. And he, think, he gives examples, for example, of hospitals uh, being resp- required to give certain health and safety disclosures to parents related to the care of newborn infants, where it doesn't specifically relate to any procedure that the hospital was providing. Um, and also certain uh, in various other uh uh, contexts like uh, uh, disclosures landlords have to give to certain tenants and things like that. And he says that the the majority's exception um, for, quote, health and safety warnings long considered permissible or purely factual and uncontroversial disclosures about commercial products, he says that's just going to ask for litigation because it's so unclear what, what falls in that and what fits within that, that category. Um, but and he says, he says, uh, this shouldn't be con- con- lumped in with uh, the court's uh, case law on content-based speech regulation because disclosures don't normally limit speech. They they require someone to to disclose certain certain uh, information, but they they don't actually limit someone's speech, so they shouldn't be regarded the same way as a speech limitation. Now uh, he he spends a while specifically talking about Planned Parenthood v. Casey. That's in 1992 um, uh, abortion case. That was a follow-on case after uh, Roe v. Wade that kind of um, refined and changed the the standard for um, uh, regu- uh, for evaluating courts evaluating. Uh, um, uh, abortion restrictions. Um, but in that case, the, the court upheld a law that required doctors to tell, uh, here's, here's a quote, to tell the woman about the nature of the abortion procedure, the health risks of abortion and of childbirth, the probable gestation age of the unborn child, and the availability of printed materials describing the fetus, medical assistance for childbirth, potential child support, and the agencies that would provide a, adoption services or other alternatives to abortion. So uh, the, the court in that case upheld that, that large set of disclosures that doctors uh, were required to give women who were seeking abortions and found that there was no undue ab- burden on uh, women seeking abortions. And um, in that case, the court denied that there was any First Amendment concern, uh, any violation of the First Amendment concern in requiring that kind of disclosure. And so Breyer says, an even-handed application of this Casey standard should easily justify the disclosure here. These licensed clinics are medical professionals who are providing pregnancy-related services. So, And the disclosure in this case is just as valuable as the informed consent in the Casey case. Um, 
He also disagrees with the majority in saying that the disclosure is not related to medical procedure. He says the childbirth itself, and that's the services people are, are going to, are services related to child childbirth. Childbirth itself has medical risks, and disclosures often go beyond just the, the narrow procedure being performed. For example, and he refers to an example of a law, um, a, a, a state law involving breast cancer screenings, where uh, if there's a finding of breast cancer, the... the, uh, the uh, um, the professionals providing the screening are required to give a disclosure of treatment options. Now that disclosure has nothing to do with risks of the screening itself. It's, it's about what was discovered in the screening. Um, yet that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty standard type of disclosure that Justice Breyer says should be, um, perfectly reasonable and acceptable. Um, he also uh, hits a few other points. He says that targeting centers that cater to low-income individuals is reasonable. So some of the line drawing involved in the state and not pulling in a lot of the uh, um, uh, paid uh, clinics um, is not a, is not uh, is not an issue here. He says that the the um, the, the Zouderer standard uh, notice notice that the state provides uh, certain uh, services in the same in the same area um, that that's a that's a, uh, a perfectly uh, factual statement and it's an interest that the state has in providing and, and that 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 should uh, meet that standard um, and and he says that because these disclosure laws don't prohibit any speech that the court just shouldn't rely on cases that are about speech restrictions they're not they're not really um, applicable um, and he, he also he, he talks about the the, uh, the discussion of factual non controversial information that the, that the majority mentioned, and he said here the availability of abortion services is factual, not a normative statement. It's just a, it's a it's a, a fact of of what California provides. And he he says that the disclosure here it doesn't express a preference for abortion over alternatives. And he says that this um, regardless of the the normative disagreements that exist over abortion itself, um, the the he says, in fact, that this moral disagreement over the status of abortion makes the even-handed application of this doctrine even more important in this area. So that's he argues that that um, that in, in supporting his argument that that uh, the prior case law, including Casey, um, should should uh, be applied even-handedly in this case. Um, he also addresses the viewpoint discrimination issue, um, and he says basically he says that hasn't wasn't really fully developed in the court below. Uh, I can't I can't support a preliminary injunction for that reason, um, but but he 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 suggests that that could be a viable claim um, if the facts supported it going forward. So so presumably he would have uh, you know he's in the dissent here, but he would have uh, allowed that that uh, claim to be uh, further developed. Um, not for the preliminary injunction, but for, for uh, later purposes as the litigation went along. Um, so moving on, he talks about the unlicensed clinics. And he says, uh, quote, it is self-evident that patients might think they're receiving qualified medical care when they enter facilities that collect health information, perform obstetric ultrasounds or sonograms, diagnose pregnancy, and provide counseling about pregnancy options or other prenatal care. So, so he, he, he's countering the, the, the argument that California hadn't, uh, shown that there was this, uh, this, um, uh, interest in providing the, the the disclosure that it was a non-licensed, uh, uh clinic. Um, and he, he also, um, says that there's there's no evidence in these cases of viewpoint discrimination. He says the exclusion of providers of contraceptive services is reasonable because the intent here was to protect pregnant women um, from unlicensed, uh, unknowingly uh, going to unlicensed providers, and uh, contraceptive services are not uh, typically um, 
uh, used by pregnant women. So, so that exclusion was uh, sensible based on the goal here. And then she, he says that there isn't uh, an undue burden, um, shown here. The burdens are, are all hypothetical. And he says that really the, the, the things like the advertising, the, the, the concern over the large type and 13 different languages, that should be addressed in a case-by-case manner. He says, in the vast majority of counties, the disclosure is actually needed in only two languages. If the burden of 13 languages in L.A. County is really um, that significant, that could be challenged in an appropriate case uh, on, on a case-by-case basis. So that brings me to the end of that, and then move on to our next case. This is the uh, uh, other case that was issued uh, Tuesday, which is Trump v. Hawaii. Um, this was a, the... the the uh, travel ban litigation, the, the, the case over um, the uh, Trump administration's um, ban on entry into the country from nationals from certain countries. Um, and again, this is our fourth case uh, we discussed tonight that split 5-4 along the uh, uh, conservative liberal lines. Now, some very brief background about the travel ban litigation. There were three separate um uh, versions of the travel ban that went into effect at, at various times. The, fir- the first one uh, was issued uh, only a week after uh, President Trump's inauguration. Um, that was later uh, a, a amended uh, executive order was issued um, uh, a, a little more than a month later that um, that uh, made various changes to the original one. And then the the original those original orders. Uh, had a 90-day entry ban and also called for um, the uh, various uh, parts of the administration to conduct a global review of uh, the immigration procedures to to uh, vetting procedures um, and uh, determine after that how to go forward. Um, eventually, when, when uh, that travel ban went into effect and that 90-day period happened, the government conducted a review, and at the conclusion of that review, version 3 of the travel ban was enacted. Um, and th- that, that happened uh, this, this past September, the, the, the version 3. Now, this one was not a temporary one. It wasn't a 90-day ban. It was, this was a permanent or a, you know, a continuing um, ban. Um, it changed, uh, it dropped or modified the countries that were involved in the uh, in the ban from the previous version, and and uh, required a, a review every 180 days of um, the uh, the inclusion of, of countries in that uh, that uh, entry ban. Now, um, several arguments were made uh, challenging this ban. There were there were there were uh, the the entry ban. There were there were challenges made on statutory grounds. Um, there were both that the president did not have the authority. To issue this order, uh, or that um, in issuing this order it conflicted with prohibitions in another statutory provision, and we'll, I'll discuss those in a minute. But there was also a constitutional challenge, saying that this was a violation of the First Amendment's establishment clause, and that's um, that's a, a prohibition on uh, the establishment of religion. That, that the the idea that the government can't favor uh, one religion over another, and the the basic claim here is that the, the implementation of this travel ban was infected by um, anti-Muslim animus; that it was it was enacted for for these discriminatory purposes. Um, and thus, therefore, it's 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 impermissible and should be struck down as a violation of the establishment clause. So th- those are those are the the basic um, issues in the case. Now, uh, it was a five four split. Uh, Justice Roberts wrote the majority for the five conservatives. There were also um, concurrences, uh, solo concurrences by Justice Kennedy and Justice Thomas. And Justice Breyer, there were two separate dissents, uh, and the dissents uh, were 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 split. There was one dissent by Justice Breyer joined by Justice Kagan, and a, a second dissent by Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ginsburg. And so let me run through each of the opinions to uh, kind of explain um, 
the the breakdown and uh, where the where the different uh, justices fell in in this. So um, Justice Roberts he he began his opinion with kind of a procedural history of the the, the different presidential um, executive orders and the and the final proclamation that was uh, version three of the travel the travel ban and uh, and the litigation over the travel ban at various stages. Um, and he also gives kind of a review of the review procedure under the executive orders uh, the, 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 that the executive branch was supposed to enter into, into in order to um, evaluate uh, the, the various countries of the world uh, for purposes of designing um, its, uh, its immigration policy going forward. Um, and he, 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 uh, he briefly touches on a, a concept known as uh, consular non-reviewability. And this is an idea um, that – from from some of the court's older cases saying that the exclusion of an alien from the country is simply not reviewable by courts unless there's an express authorization by law of such a review. Um, and there had been arguments made that that should apply here and basically this entire uh, travel ban should be non-reviewable. The courts just can't review it. But uh, Justice Roberts says that that's, that's not a jurisdictional requirement. Um, so for purposes of this uh, case, they're not answering that question, but just assuming reviewability for purposes of um, this opinion. And he goes on to discuss first the statutory arguments. Now, um, there's a provision. The first provision is a provision of the uh, the Immigration um, uh, Act that's uh, Section 1182F, which um, says the president can quote suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens whenever he finds that their entry would quote would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. So he says this is a very broad deferential authority given to the, the president. Um, and he says the proclamation here satisfies this requirement of finding uh, the, that the entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. And he says, in fact, this proclamation had, was more detailed than any of the pre- previous presidential uses of this uh, um, this provision, 1182F. Um, and apparently there have been 43 prior suspensions before this by, by various different presidents. And he says this is the most detailed one that's ever been given under this provision. So the idea that uh, an insufficient uh, explanation was given, um, he says, does not hold up. There was also an argument made that the requirement that he can suspend for such period um, the, 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 he can suspend their entry for such period. There was an argument that, that that required a defined period of time. And the fact that this had no fixed end date meant it violated his authority. And Justice Breyer, or, I mean, sorry, Chief Justice Roberts just re- simply rejects that, says that there's no requirement by saying it can be for such period that, that there's no requirement that that, that um, has to include some kind of fixed end date. And that wouldn't make uh, sense, especially if there's, this is dealing with, um, you know, national security emergencies or things like that, where the, the specific time frame involved uh, wouldn't necessarily be known ahead of time. If there's a war starting or something like that, and no one knows how long it's going to last. And he, and he also notes that um, the in the 43 prior suspensions under this provision, not a single one of them had a fixed end date involved. So uh, So he rejects that idea. Um, uh, and he says that in fact here the the, the proclamation says that these uh, restrictions are conditional. They're they're by the terms of the uh, proclamation they are only supposed to remain in remain in place as long as needed, and it has these 180 day reassessments built into it. 
Um, and he further says that it's, that it's this, pro- this uh, provision applies to any class of aliens. And he says this is broad enough to include nationality. A class of aliens is just a very, very broad provision um, that the president can designate. And so that could include uh, nationals of a certain country. Um, he goes on to say that he, he finds this to be con- consistent with other provisions of the of immigration law. Um, two in specific have been, uh, have been highlighted. One is the individualized vetting system that exists to uh, to review uh, individuals from other countries that want visas into the United States, um, and and the other one is what's known as the visa waiver program, and this is a, a fast track program where uh, nationals of certain countries, certain cooperating countries, uh, have a, a faster processing and faster admission uh, into the country. And what he says is, Justice Roberts says, uh, there's there's no identified conflict between the proclamation and either of these programs. Um, there, there is an individual vetting system, but there's nothing that requires vetting to occur only on a one-by-one basis. The proclamation is intended to deal with systemic problems um, concerned with uh, unreliable documentation from certain countries. Um, and so there's nothing inconsistent by having those two different types of uh, vetting, one, one uh, kind of uh, country-wide rules to deal with these systemic, systemic problems and individualized vetting to look at individuals uh, of concern. And then he also says that this proclamation actually works in tandem with the visa waiver program. He says the visa, wa- visa waiver program gives this uh, special status to the top 20% of countries um, but the the remainder of countries are undifferentiated, and this proclamation just says the the very bottom countries, those countries that are uh, kind of in worst, in worst compliance with uh, with good um, uh, verification and and uh, and cooperation with the United States, they're they're being treated as a, a separate lower category, and there's nothing inconsistent about that. Um, and uh, um. There's also an argument that the, that this provision should be uh, an argument based on the legislative history of this provision, saying that that it ought to be construed to be limited to emergencies, so limited to only dealing with uh, national security emergencies. Um, but Justice Roberts argues that in fact, uh, language that would have uh, limited it to national emergencies was explicitly removed during the drafting, and it's been used by past presidents for broad purposes, including as a political tool uh, to. Uh, kind of um, push back against countries that were uh, adopting policies unfriendly to the United States. So he says that this is this is just this is uh, within the president's authority under 1182F. So that brings me to the second um, uh, provision and this is a section called 1152A1A. And this provision says quote no person shall be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence. Um, and so, th- again, this prohib- prohibits discrimination against the issuance of an immigrant visa uh, because of, among other things, nationality. So there's a challenge that, that regardless of the general authority the president has under the other provision, he should be barred um, in discrimination on the basis of nationality by this provision. Now, Roberts first points out that this is limited, limited to the issuance of immigrant visas. So first of all, there's no application of this to non-immigrant visa categories. Um, so, so he just notes that limited application here. So at, at most, this would uh, prohibit part of what's covered by the um the proclamation, not not the entirety of it. Um, but then he goes on to say that this ignores a distinction between visa issuance and admission. He says admissibility has has two roles in the basic uh, pro- process. First, when there's uh, if if an inadmissibility um, determination has been made about some individual, 
then that makes that in, individual ineligible for a visa to, to, to receive a visa. One of the criteria needed for obtaining a visa is, is admissibility. So that would make them ineligible. But then even if someone has been granted a visa, inadmissibility can still bar entry. So someone can be granted a visa and then arrive at the United States and be barred entry because they're determined at some point to be inadmissible. So the inadmissibility has those two roles in the process and they're separate and distinct from the issuance of a visa. And he says that, that, that uh, it's, you can reasonably read these provisions together to say that the president has this broad authority to determine that certain classes of people are inadmissible. But once you've passed that point and people are admissible, um, when making determinations of who does and does not get visas, you can't make any of these discriminatory determinations. Um, so he says that, that it fits together and, uh, and, um, and you can read these together. And he also points to other provisions of, um, of immigration law that, that expressly prohibit um, exclusion from the country or restrictions on entry rather than speaking in terms of visa issuance. So if, if this provision were intended to, uh, to apply directly to, uh, exclusion or restrictions on enter- entry, it would have been phrased in that way and not phrased in terms of visa issuance. So that, that with, with the statutory arguments out of the way, he moves on to the, um, the constitutional argument about anti-Muslim animus. Um, and he says that there is, uh, standing to bring this challenge um, by some of the, uh, the the challengers in this case, based on exclusion of people's relatives from the country, um, and he goes on to kind of recount some of the history here. He recounts uh, uh, President Trump first as a candidate, and then as later as president, uh, some of his more inflammatory statements about Muslims. Um, but Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, he frames this as an issue of um, the significance of these statements on an otherwise neutral enactment. And he refers to an older Supreme Court case called Kleindienst v. Mandel. Um, and in that case, the court uh, found that it's, it's review in reviewing the admission um, so, uh, admissibility or whether some, the admission to the country, um, the court's review is limited to whether the government has provided a facially legitimate and bona fide reason. Um, and this is justified in part by national security concerns and about uh, uh, having the courts play too much of a role in, in second guessing um, the government's actions. And um, he says here under that test, he says there was a legitimate purpose. It's preventing the entry of nationals who can't be adequately vetted and also to induce nations to improve their practices. And he says that it's facially neutral. He says there's no mention in this proclamation of religion. Um, it's true that five of the seven nations that are included in the final proclamation are Muslim majority nations, but only 8% of these, these nations make up only 8% of the world's Muslim population. So it's not, um, it's not targeting uh, Muslims, uh, uh, in, in the law, at law, in, in the whole. It's, it's just targeting those who live in these particular, um, countries that are targeted. Um, and he says further that the proclamation uh, gives an explanation for the inclusion of each nation on the list. Um, the, and, and, and so, so it's, it's, there is justification that's been provided by the government. And he, he gives a couple other facts that he says support, um, the, the, uh, the finding that there's a valid national security interest. One is that since the first version of this, uh, travel ban, the first executive order, there have been three Muslim majority nations have been removed from the list. And those are Chad, Iraq, and Sudan. Um, and also that apparently that Libya, the, according to the State Department, is involved in ongoing engagements with the United States to improve its practices. And presumably, if that uh, those improvements did occur, would be removed from a future version of this list. Um, 
And he says that, that another factor is that each of the countries on the list, there are significant exceptions made for various categories of immigrants from, of, of, uh, entrance from those countries. For example, from some countries, students are allowed in and many non-immigrant visa category uh, types of non-immigrant immigrant visas are allowed from many of the countries on the list. Um, and, and because of these carve outs, he says it effectively exempts the majority of visas uh, sought in years prior to this enactment. The majority of those visas are actually fall within some of these exempt categories. So the fact that all these exemptions are are made for these certain categories on a country by country's basis um, undermines the the idea that it's just purely a a, a, a Muslim ban. Um, he also says that there points to a waiver process that exists for for immigrants who can show undue hardship from from the the, the ban, and so he points to those to, to show that this uh, uh, that there's at least uh, support for this uh, having a national security um, rationale. Um, so as a result, the the order here is that the the lower courts injunction, injunctions are uh, reversed. Um, this is remanded to the lower courts uh, for further proceedings to go forward, but there's no uh, preliminary injunction in place and the uh, the uh, travel ban can be in full effect. Now, Justice Kennedy concurred at, at a uh, short statement. Now, he joined the majority opinion in full, but also had a, a short statement basically just noting the duty of uh, government actors to obey the Constitution's anti-discrimination requirements, even in circumstances where their actions may be unreviewable in court. So he's he's, he's kind of recognizing the fact that that the the court's uh, doctrines that they're adopting may may result in certain actions being effectively unreviewable, but then kind of impressing on the the uh, you know uh, officers in the executive branch their duty to make sure that they're still acting constitutionally. Uh, just an interesting short statement there. And then Justice Con- uh, Thomas also had a concurrence, and he first he states very briefly a few broader positions that he holds, and this is uh, kind of. Uh, Common thing for Justice Thomas, where he he has some uh, very idiosyncratic views that are often um, very uh, much broader than uh, than other members of the court. But he states a, a few of them very quickly. First, he argues that um, the pre- the president's authority is not limited to the statutory uh, authority under sections 1182, but that the president actually has inherent executive power to exclude aliens from the country, and he can in- use that executive power uh, regardless of it fit if it fits precisely within the scope of section 1182. He also, um, under the establishment clause, so the 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 anti-Muslim animus part, he specifically rejects a particular test that is used in some uh, uh, establishment clause cases, which asks whether a reasonable observer uh, would regard something as uh, as um, as. Uh, um, trying to favor a particular religion, and he he rejects that reasonable observer test as a, as not the appropriate test in this case. He doesn't elaborate more in this particular opinion. Um, and then uh, the third one is he 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 argues that aliens abroad, so aliens not in the United States, basically don't have uh, other constitutional rights, so aren't able to bring um, other potential constitutional claims because they just don't don't have can't exercise those rights. Um, but then the bulk of his concurrence is is uh, is on a, a different subject, and this is something referred to as universal injunctions. And this is one of the issues that the court had said that it, that it was would considering in taking this case. It was one of the questions presented, one of the issues that the court uh, might have uh, um, resolved, but didn't actually in the majority opinion. And um, universal injunctions are it's it's a uh, there, it goes by several different uh, uh, terms. Sometimes they're called nationwide injunctions, sometimes universal injunctions. But it's the idea of that a, a district court 
in ruling in in grant in granting an injunction, so in granting an order to someone uh, barring uh, typically the government from uh, from going forward with some policy, um, instead of barring them from applying the policy to uh, the particular parties to the case, the people bringing the legal challenge, um, the government is ordered to stop applying that that. Uh, um, policy nationwide to everyone. And so that happened in this case uh, m- multiple times over the course of the litigation. District courts entered injunctions barring the federal government from um, enforcing the travel ban nationwide as to any um, entries and entrance into the country. And uh, Justice Thomas says that this uh, this this practice of issuing these universal injunctions, first he says there's, there's no statutory authority for this. And the, the court's equitable power, the court's power to, 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 to grant these, these orders as, as remedies for, for violations of the law is constrained by historical practice. And he says that these universal injunctions are a very recent innovation. They first emerged in the 1960s and really only, only exploded in, in, within the last decade. Um, traditionally, American courts pro- provided no relief beyond the parties to the case. Now, sometimes if it was necessary, um, in order to give the party, the parties to the case full relief, uh, the, the crafted in a way that it benefited other third parties as well. So, for example, if, if uh, someone is challenging a segregated school, um, in order to provide them with the integrated school, it would be uh, necessary to, to have an injunction that would apply um, broadly uh, to to uh, to anyone involved in that. That's just just an example. Um, but but the the court uh, is only supposed to be uh, granting relief sufficient. To um, to uh, to benefit the the parties that are actually uh, in court in the case, and he says that this idea it meshes with other doctrines uh, that the courts apply, like the idea of standing that you can't you can't bring a legal claim on behalf of just uh, harms to some other person. You have to have some personal stake, some personal harm to you in order to bring uh, an action. Well, uh, it, that meshes with the idea that the relief that the courts um, that the courts grant should also be limited to um, the parties that are before the court. And here's his his uh, conclusion. He says, quote, In sum, universal injunctions are legally and historically dubious. If federal courts continue to issue them, this court is duty-bound to adjudicate their authority to do so. So he's basically flagging this as, a, as, as, a, uh, as something he, he wants the court to address head-on in a future case. So that brings me to the dissents, and I mentioned there's two of them. We'll start with Justice Breyer's dissent. Justice Breyer's dissent, joined by Justice Kagan, is um, pretty narrow. He, he says, you know, the issue here is... Were, were, was this proclamation significantly affected by religious animus or solely based on national security? And he says that, that to, ter- to determine this, um, one, one way to, to ask this question is to look at the system of, of waivers and exemptions involved here. Um, and he says that if there these waivers and exemptions that are in place, um, if they're being uh, applied uh, um Faithfully, that would strengthen the legitimacy of, of this as a national security practice. He says it would be consistent with past president, presidential practices under previous proclamations. And he says it also kind of more closely matches the case by case framework of the, of the immigration statutes, uh, statutes more generally. But he says on the other hand, a failure to provide these remedies or these waivers or exemptions as are, as are called for in the proclamation makes this seem more like it's really just a, a Muslim ban, uh, in disguise. And then he, he goes, he looks at it and he, he says, he, he raises a few things that he says, um, way, uh, more toward the, the second, um, determination that this is really, uh, what he regards as, as, as a Muslim ban, uh, in, in other, in other t- names. Uh, first is, 
that apparently no guidelines for granting waivers have been promulgated to consular officers. So there, there are no, no standards have been given to them in order to do this. And he, he also, there's also an affidavit has been produced in other litigation from a consular official saying that, that they have no authority to grant waivers. They haven't been allowed to actually grant these waivers. And preliminary data shows that there's basically a minuscule number of visas has been granted. And according to Breyer, according to the numbers, based on the number of visa applications prior to these, uh, these travel, the travel ban, uh, being implemented, based on those, uh, prior year's data, um, uh, the 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 exempted categories of visas under the the proclamation should have resulted in a significantly higher number of visas granted. Uh, categories like students and refugees would have accounted for a significant number of visas, but the fact that such a tiny number of visas has actually been granted suggests that these exemptions are not actually being um, uh, applied as they are uh, uh, supposed to be in the. Um, in the proclamation. And now Breyer acknowledges that these are just anecdotes and preliminary numbers. This isn't official judicial fact finding, but he says that, that, uh, uh, there's, there's enough in play, enough there, uh, for the preliminary injunction to stay in place and that this should, should have been remanded down for a fuller determination, um, on this, on, on this issue. So that brings me to the second dissent, and this is by Justice Sotomayor. And this dissent is, is, is a much, um, uh, kind of takes head on, uh, the, the, uh, anti-Muslim animus point. Um, and she, she points to, uh, factors that, uh, normally under the court's case law, the, the court is supposed to consider when determining whether the government is acting in a way that disfavors a particular religion. And she, and here's some of the factors. She says it includes the text of the government policy, its operation, and any available evidence regarding, quote, the historical background of the decision under challenge, the specific series of events leading to the enactment of official or official policy in question, and the legislative or administrative history, including contemporaneous statements made by the decision maker. And then she goes into kind of a much lengthier recounting of various statements by Trump. Um, and she, she goes through a, a very a lengthy state, uh, kind of a, a catalog of all the various things tr- uh, uh, Trump had said, both uh, as a candidate and as president. Um, and and uh, kind of emphasizes both the, the the extent of his anti-Muslim statements, and also kind of draws a uh, uh, shows kind of a continuity from the his earliest statement regarding uh, wanting a, a Muslim ban uh, during the campaign, all the way through version three of the travel ban, the, the current version that's that's in place right now. Um, and she says she concludes from this as viewed in totality. The proclamation was driven primarily by anti-Muslim animus. And she notes that there was never any disavowal of any of these statements by President Trump. Um, And there she she compares this to the recent Masterpiece Cake Shop case in which the court um, ended up siding against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission on the basis of what the court viewed as uh, um, anti-statements Against uh, the the uh, the religious beliefs of the uh, the the uh, um, shop owner in that particular case, um, and and says that 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 same standard applied here um, should should uh, easily find uh, that anti-religious animus by uh, by President Trump, um, and then she she goes on to to criticize the majority's reliance on facial neutrality. Um, 
she she rejects uh what she she characterizes as a um, rational basis approach that's just referring to uh, an approach that that only only asks whether the the government has a legitimate um interest and 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 uh doesn't dig too deeply into it she says that the establishment clause the under, under these this uh um you know religious freedom provision it demands a more searching probe and she says here there's overwhelming evidence of anti-muslim animus and that should defeat any suggestion of a, le- a legitimate purpose um and she also says that, that this proclamation she characterizes it as, it as quote religious gerrymander a religious a religious gerrymander she says that it targets muslim majority nations it has this minimal inclusion of two non-muslim nations that's venezuela and north korea but basically suggests that's just kind of for cover it, it only applies to a handful of high-ranking venezuelan officials and north korea was already sub- subject to restrictions uh, due to sanctions so it didn't really didn't really um have much application to either of those. This is really just targeting a bunch of uh, Muslim majority nations. And she says that um, the the proclamation as issued uh, doesn't really isn't doesn't really mesh well with the worldwide review that supposedly justifies it. She said first of all that the pr- results of that worldwide review are secret, so the court is unable to really evaluate them. But according to a Freedom of Information Act uh, request. The, the report that was produced based on this process was only 17 pages long, which she regards as, uh, as, uh, just facially, um, insufficient to justify a, uh, a policy of, of this type. Um, and she says that the national security concerns that are supposedly behind this are already addressed by the statutory scheme through the individualized vetting and the visa waiver program. And she furthermore, um, citing, uh, Justice Breyer's dissent, she says that uh, she regards the waiver process as a sham. So uh, based on all of this, she, she says this satisfies the standard for a preliminary, preliminary injunction um, and should, should be issued. Now, she, she, she also concludes with some very strong language. She, she has a strongly worded final statement. She says, quote, in holding that the First Amendment gives way to an executive policy that a reasonable observer would view as motivated by animus against Muslims, the majority opinion upends this court's precedent, repeats tragic mistakes of the past, and denies countless individuals the fundamental right of religious liberty. And then she goes on to have a, a pretty lengthy comparison of this decision to a case called Korematsu v. United States, a 1944 case. Now, that's the notorious Supreme Court decision that upheld the internment of U.S. citizens of Japanese ancestry during World War II. Um, and uh, she she uh, has kind of a lengthy comparison um Basically, it's saying that the, the court is is uh, deferring to a supposed national security rationale when uh, when when it's uh, clear that there are actually um, uh, uh, invidious uh, discriminatory motives that are really motiva- uh, motivating the policy. Um, and she concludes: This is her final final uh, line of uh, of the. Uh, um, dissent. She says, quote, our constitution demands and our country deserves a judiciary willing to hold the coordinate branches to account when they defy our most sacred, le- sacred legal commitments, because the court's decision today has failed in that respect with profound regret. I dissent. So, so that's, uh, that finishes our, uh, discussion of, uh, Trump v. Hawaii. We've got two cases left to go. Now, the first of these two, I'm going to try and move through very quickly. This is a case called Florida v. Georgia. This is the only one of the six cases this week that did not divide along the ideological lines, now, though it was still a five to four decision. This had a uh, majority written by Justice Breyer, joined by Justices Kennedy, Chief Justice Roberts, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor. 
and Justice Thomas in dissent, um, joined by Justices Alito, Kagan, and Gorsuch. And this is, uh, you know, we've had a lot of these very uh, um, uh, high-profile, uh, politically divisive um, cases that split along ideological lines. This is pretty far from that. This is a, a highly technical, highly detailed case, um, and it's about water rights. And so let me briefly talk about this, and I'm going to try and run through it pretty quickly. Uh, it's a dispute over the allocation of water in the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint River Basin, and which covers parts of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Um, and the specific issue is this: there, there, uh, two two rivers, the the uh, um, the Chattahoochee River and the Flint River, that um, that. Uh, Come together and and uh, and become the uh, Apalachicola River, uh, which uh, go- flows down through Florida. And Florida brought this action against Georgia, alleging that Georgia's overuse of water in the river system was causing ecological and economic harm to Florida. So uh, when there's drought situations, because Georgia was taking too much water, Florida was suffering um, uh, from the, uh, the the drought conditions. Now, an important fact in this case is that. The Army Corps of Engineers operates a set of dams and reservoirs on the on this river system, and um, those dams and reservoirs, uh, uh, to some degree, determine the flow of water on various parts of the river. Um, and it's, uh, specifically, there's the the water flows um, uh, into a lake. Uh, the water uh, coming from Georgia fl- flows into a, a a lake, and then uh, the, from that lake, water is is released downstream to flow down into into Florida. Um, and there's also a series of other dams on one of the two rivers uh, uh, further up. Now, the, the result of this case, uh, the, 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 the issue in this case was, uh, this, so let me back up a second. This is a case in the court's original jurisdiction. Now, these are those narrow set of cases that are not appeals to the Supreme Court, but are cases that are filed directly in the Supreme Court. And the main, the most common category of these cases are suits by one state directly against another state. So here, Florida v. Georgia. And um, the most common reason for these suits is water disputes. So this is this is a recurring situation the court has to deal with. Uh, whenever there's uh, you know, rivers uh, flowing over state lines, there's often these disputes over uh, um, who's uh, one state uh, using more than their fair share and and uh, depriving typically depriving the downstream state of uh, of its uh, fair share of the water. Um, now the the way the court deals with these cases, the court is not. You know, it's it's an appellate court. It's not a trial court. It's not set up to hold trials, to uh, uh, hear testimony, things like that. So what it typically does in these cases is it appoints a special master. The special master will hear um, the case. The special master essentially acts as a, ju- a trial judge in the case and hears testimony, may hold a full trial, um, and eventually issues a report. Now, that special master's report is, is like a judicial opinion, and that judicial opinion, um, the Parties to the case have the op- opportunity to um, to make what's known as exceptions. That's kind of objections to aspects of the of the report. So they they file exceptions to the report, and then the Supreme Court reviews those exceptions, and the Supreme Court can choose to uh, to overrule or sustain those exceptions and and uh, and modify the special master's report, or or they can adopt the special master's report or adopt it with certain uh, modifications or whatever. Um, but the Supreme Court essentially converts it into more of an ap- appeal by allowing the special master to serve as the trial court and the Supreme Court sits in review over the report um, from the special master. So here, 
the special master determined that although Florida um, was was uh, harmed by um, Georgia's overuse of water uh, from the river system, the issue here was. Um, if Georgia were ordered to to stop using the water that it was using, if it was ordered to, to do that, any additional water that was flowing downstream in there would be flowing into these uh, lakes and reservoirs controlled by the Army Corps of Engineers. And um, because of the Army Corps of Engineers, they, they, the Army Corps has um, uh, a, a kind of a large number of criteria it uses for controlling the flow of water through these river systems and includes various considerations about flood control, but also about the Endangered Species Act and ensuring that there's appropriate water levels in various places, and also planning ahead and trying to reserve water in various reservoirs, lakes and reservoirs, um, to, uh, to be able to accommodate future drought conditions. And so the fact that Georgia allows more water to flow downstream does not necessarily mean that that water will will end up in Florida um, because that water may end up um, or at least not end up in Florida immediately not end up right when it's needed um, that water may end up uh, the, because more water is coming in from one river, for example, the Army Corps may choose to dam more water, uh, hold more water back um, in reservoirs in the other of the river systems, so the same amount of water may come down to Florida. Um, the Army Corps may choose to not allow more water to flow through because it's trying to um, build up its reserves in the reservoirs so that there's more uh, for the future. There's various considerations. So the issue was... The special master ruled that Florida hadn't proven that, um, uh, and, and importantly, the Army Corps of Engineers was not a party to this case. Um, they, the United States uh, did not agree to be a party to this case, and they were immune from being pulled into it. And the Army Corps of Engineers was not, uh, the, the court was not in a position that they could order the Army Corps of Engineers to to do anything or change its its uh, its practices here. And so the court, uh, the special master held that Florida hadn't proven that it would actually benefit um, from uh, Georgia reducing its water use because it hadn't shown that the water would actually end up making its way to Florida. Now, Justice Breyer writes the opinion for the majority, and he uh, the end result here is he, he wants to remand this case back to the special master for further fa- factual findings and further proceedings. And the the issue here is this is a case that's under what's known as equitable apportionment, and that's the 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 court's uh, doctrines that have built up over the years for trying to allocate water between uh, between different states. Um, and the argument here was basically that the special master applied too strict of a standard. Um, he said that that while uh, the state that's complaining, so here Florida, has a high burden of showing that they've been harmed, showing that there's an actual harm here from Georgia. Um, they don't have such a high burden in demonstrating the remedy. Um, the, 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 the court says, in fact, um, remedies, these remedies, the, the solution in these cases, um, it doesn't demand precision or, or being able to know the future with certainty. The courts have a lot of leeway in crafting an appropriate solution going forward. Um, and as long as, uh, if Florida had met its burden of showing that it was harmed and that harm was caused by Georgia, then the fact that they couldn't meet a particularly high standard of demonstrating that the remedy would help them, that doesn't, that, that's not enough and, and this should go back for further determinations. And this is how, uh, Breyer kind of characterizes it. He kind of splits it up into different questions involved in this case. First, did Georgia harm Florida by taking too much water? He says basically, yes, uh, the special master determined yes. Would a cap on Georgia's use increase the flow to Florida? That's the key question that's at issue here in the appeal. And he says then a further question is, would increased flow uh, – 
from coming to to Florida from from uh, if if uh, if a cap on Georgia's use would increase the flow to Florida, would that be enough to actually help Florida? Would it actually solve the economic and eco- ecological problems? He says, well, that's a that's a question for for uh, the special master to look at on remand. But the main question here is, would a cap on Georgia's use increase the flow to Florida? Um, and he he says that the evidence suggests that the Army Corps would be likely to release additional water to Florida. And he includes in this a lengthy technical discussion of the Army Corps' management practices of the river system. But he says that the, the case should be remanded to the special master for more fact-finding on the amount of benefit to Florida. Um, and he notes that the Army Corps had indicated that it will take into account any degree from any decree from this court and and it will be cooperative, um, but that the Corps does have many competing priorities and, and – uh, um, at the end, Justice Breyer, in in, uh, in saying that this should be sent back to the special master for for more fact finding, he goes through a, a number of additional questions that the the special master should consider um, and maybe answer in this additional fact uh, fact finding. And I'll just run through those just to just to kind of show how much uh, Justice Breyer thinks is still um, still needs to be determined. He says, "quote." To what extent does Georgia take too much water from the Flint River? To what extent has Florida sustained injuries as a result? To what extent would a cap on Georgia's water consumption increase the amount of water that flows from the Flint River into Lake Seminole? To what extent, under the Corps' revised master manual or under reasonable modifications that could be made to that manual, would would additional water resulting from a cap on Georgia's water consumption result in additional stream flow in the Apalachicola River? To what extent would that additional stream flow into the Apalachicola River ameliorate, ameliorate Florida's injuries? So, I mean, th- that's pretty much the entire case uh, that, that, that Justice Breyer is suggesting needs more fact-finding and determinations from the special master. So that brings me to Justice Thomas's dissent. Now, Justice Thomas emphasizes at a few points in this dissent uh, how much fact-finding has already happened at the special master in front of the special master. He mentions there was a one-month trial that involved 40 witnesses and more than 2,000 exhibits. Um, and he later talks about uh, all of the discovery, so the, 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 the document production and such that, that happened. He says, during their 18 months of discovery, the parties produced 7.2 million pages of documents, served 130 third-party subpoenas, issued more than 30 expert reports, and conducted nearly 100 depositions, including 29 expert depositions. So he's emphasizing the extent of the proceedings that have already happened here. And then he goes through his own discussion of the Army Corps' practices um, uh, managing the water on this river system. And he, and he notes that the Army Corps maintains a relatively steady flow of water out of Lake Seminole, and that's where the water that comes uh, down to the Apalachicola River into Florida would come from. And he says that basically the Army Corps has this a preference for reserving water in its reservoirs, and its normal policies wouldn't result in much additional water um, during drought periods if Georgia were to uh, uh, allow more water to flow downstream. Um and he says that the, the, this case, uh, in this case, the special master correctly applied the tests uh, in this case. He says the majority misconstrues the special master as dealing with a threshold determination as, as, as uh, thinking that um, the special master was requiring Florida have to, to have to demonstrate uh, this uh, remedy at the outset. Um, but he says, in fact, no, the, the, the special master was correctly dealing with this uh, uh at the appropriate point in the process, uh, conducting what's known as a balance of harms test. Um, and, and one of the threshold questions in this balance of harms test is that Florida has to show that there would be some appreciable benefit, and that's where Florida had failed. 
And he says the approach that the majority is taking is just would require these numerous factual determinations uh, early on um, before determining even if Florida would see any appreciable benefit. And that's just uh, is unnecessary to require all of that up front. Um, and so Justice Thomas thinks a remand is inappropriate. He says that this court uh, is, you know, it, the special master is doing all this work, but this court is supposed to also use its, it has the final say and is supposed to do its own independent evaluation. And he says that the evidence shows that Florida failed to prove its its case. The United States represented consistently through the litigation that it typically wouldn't increase the flow that goes to Florida. Um, the outflow from the, uh, the the lake, Lake Seminole, is is unrelated to the inflow. Instead, it's driven by the need to store water up for uh, Endangered Species Act purposes. Um, he points to models that were introduced, expert models that showed that uh, that under um, the Corps. Uh, Current procedures uh, had had uh, this Georgia allowed additional water in in uh, recent years. It would have resulted in increased flow on only very limited days during the drought uh, season. And um, also, he says that arguments that the core might increase the flow voluntarily. Um, are purely speculative. The, the last time the Corps uh, updated its manual to change its water management practices, it led to two decades of litigation and an older policy that the Corps had that, re- that resulted in increased uh, water flow downstream led to disaster disastrous situations where, where the Corps had extremely low reserves and not enough to fulfill its uh, its necessary functions. So he says that Florida just, just can't demonstrate any benefit uh, from an increased water flow during not... Um, Oh, if Florida might get additional water during non-drought periods, but can't show that that actually benefits it any, it already has plentiful water during the non-drought periods. So Thomas says the court should have overruled Florida's um, exceptions and just denied relief. So uh, that brings me to the last case. So this is our final case of the week and, and last case of, of the term. Um, and this is Janice, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Uh, also uh, referred to as Ask Me for short, just a, a little bit difficult to pronounce uh, acronym there. Um, and this case, again, a 5-4 split along uh, conservative liberal lines with Justice Alito writing the majority opinion, Justice Sotomayor um, with a solo dissent, and Justice Kagan with a dissent for all four of the, uh, the more liberal justices. Now, um, this is the case about um, it's a First Amendment challenge to public employment, uh, public employee unions collection of agency fees from non-union members. Now, agency fees are fees collected by unions that are um, intended to cover the uh, collective bargaining and other representational costs that unions are required to perform for all employees, including non-union members. And just for background, the key case that's involved here, this is this is a key to this decision, is a 1977 case called Abood v. Detroit Board of Education. And in that case, uh, the court decided it, it, uh, it was it was a challenge to um, the uh, uh, collection of union dues from um, from non-members. And what the court did in that case is it distinguished between two different types of expenses that could be charged to non-union members. And it found on one hand that, um, union, uh, expenses that are, that are, that are related to involvement in political activities could not be, um, could not be charged to, to non-members. So the union couldn't charge its full dues, including money that was going to, um, political activities. But the union could, 
um, charge uh, costs that are related to collective bargaining, contract administration, grievance processes, things like that, where the union is required by law to um, to represent all employees, regardless of whether they're union members, it was legitimate for it to charge a fair share of those costs to all employees in the union. Now, um, the the uh, this there was a First Amendment decision where where the court the court uh, decided that on, on First Amendment grounds that um, the First Amendment provided against the compelled collection of of um, the c- compelled collection of union dues for those political um, political purposes. Now, this case here, this Janus case, is a direct challenge was a direct challenge to the Abood case. Now, Abood has been um, uh, controversial among um, opponents of, uh, of, of unions for, for a long time. And in uh, several recent opinions, uh, Justice Alito um, wrote opinions uh, trying to uh, cast doubt on um, the, uh, the continued viability of the Abood decision. And this is the case, finally, that... that, that uh, um, was the final challenge uh, to Abood. Now, uh, Justice Alito wrote the, the majority, and and he did in fact uh, overrule the Abood case, um, and 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 holds that the collection of, of any of these uh, uh, fees, including the uh, what are referred to as the agency fees, um, from a non-member, uh, it, it violates the First Amendment's uh, prohibitions on, on compelled. Um, association. Now, he framed his entire opinion around the justification for overruling Abood, this earlier case. Um, and he, he starts by saying the First Amendment protects the, not only the right to speak, but the right not to speak and the right not to associate. And he, he says that compelled speech is a particularly serious constitutional concern um, and says that compelled subsidization of private speech is also a First Amendment concern. He quotes Thomas Jefferson here. This is from uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, Bill for Establishing Religious Freedom, very influential early um, uh, Virginia um, law. And and the the this is a quote. It says, quote, to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. Um, so just, just kind of, uh, as a little historical, um, uh, note in, in justifying the concern over compelled subsidization of private speech. Now, um, the, he starts by, by asking a question of what level of scrutiny should be given to this, this, this law. And now this is, this is, I'm, I'm not going to get too deeply into this right now, but, um, in many areas of constitutional law, the court talks about, uh, tiers of scrutiny and, uh, different types of restrictions of laws, different types of restrictions on, on, on people's liberty, whether this is free speech or, or restrictions on other li- rights are, uh, the court often determines that, uh, these should be subject to uh, different levels of scrutiny. And at the lowest, uh, level is, is something referred to as rational basis scrutiny, where, um, the, uh, the standard is, is, uh, a law will be upheld if, as long as it's rationally related to a legitimate government interest. Um, but at the highest end, there, there are, uh, heightened, uh, forms of heightened scrutiny 
the highest is what's known as strict scrutiny, where a law can, will only be upheld if it's narrow, narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. And uh, Alito kind of um, discusses the tiers of scrutiny. He basically he doesn't um, decide which one necessarily applies, but he he says that it's definitely a form of heightened scrutiny because he says the rational basis, this low form of scrutiny where where most laws get upheld, is foreign to First Amendment doctrine. It's not the way that the court analyzes the freedom of speech and incredibly important constitutional um, protection. Um, so then he goes on to analyze Abood. And he says, first he, he talks about the original Abood case from 1977, and he looks at the interests that the government promoted in that original case. <clears throat> and the one interest that the government promoted was um, was promoting labor peace. But Alito, uh, Alito says that this this uh, this is undermined because the, the experience of the federal government uh, in which uh, federal em- uh, employees cannot be charged these agency fees, and also the experience in right-to-work states. So those are the 28 states that have uh, the so-called right-to-work laws where um, unions are not allowed to charge these agency fees to non-members. Um, the experience in those states uh, undermines the idea that there would be this great labor unrest in the absence of the ability to collect these fees um, uh, in order to have a well-funded um, exclusive union uh, uh Represent, representation. Um, so he moves on to another um, interest stated in the Abood case, which was to prevent um, free riding. So the idea was that if, if these fees were not charged, then members of the union who would receive the benefits of, of uh, that the union provides, including collective bargaining and representation and grievance proceedings and things like that, um, they would receive these benefits. But if uh, they had no obligation to uh, pay any of the costs in that, then there would be a st- strong incentive for people, even people who otherwise would approve of the union's activities, and a financial incentive for them to free ride on others. And, uh, and that that would uh, undermine the, the whole, um, the, uh, collective bargaining, uh, um, uh, regime. And, but Justice Alito says that this kind of, um, uh, uh, prevention of free riding is, is just not a generally allowed, um, rationale in, in the First Amendment, uh, realm that, that, um, spillover benefits, uh, are, are extremely common, but normally, uh, someone who is providing some, uh, some, some benefit that spills over to others can't forcibly, uh, make them contribute, uh, to that. Um, and, uh, he, he goes on after that to, to saying that the original justifications in the Abood, uh, case don't hold up, but since then new justifications have been proposed and he, he walks through those and says they also don't apply. First, he, he briefly addresses a, a, uh, uh, an argument that he says that, the, that there's an argument that's uh, phrased as an originalist argument saying that the first amendment originally just didn't provide any protection to public employees. And he says that, 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 that is a, he says that that, that kind of an argument would undermine enormous amounts of, of case law protecting public employee speech and protect protections against, um, uh, patron, political patronage, uh, 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 related firings and things like that. And so, so he says that there's no, no reason to treat this as different from all these other areas of law where, um, where, uh, public employees do have, uh, significant First Amendment protections. Then he looks at, uh, a line of cases that, that, uh, that, uh, go under the, the, the name Pickering. There's a Pickering line of cases. These are a line of cases that establish the standard for um, public employee speech, uh, what protections public employees have. And in those cases, um, the court drew a line 
between speech that was on a matter of public concern, so when someone was speaking uh, to public issues, and speech that was uh, about uh, employment-specific matters, uh, speech that was directed at the actual employment re- relationship, and the court there found that there were there were um, uh, uh, there was a significant amount of protection when an employee was speaking on a matter of public concern, but when speaking about issues of employment, uh, there was a, a very limited protection uh, um, that the employee had. And so, what Alito says is. He says a few things. First, he says Abood was not based on Pickering. So this is just kind of an after the fact um, shoehorning in uh, uh, of Abood into Pickering. But he says there's several problems. He says um, that uh, first, he's, he, there's a few, a few things he says about it. He says that one thing is that he says that those two categories in Pickering and the categories in Abood just don't really line up. The difference in Pickering between um, t- uh, speech on a matter of public concern and uh, employment-related matters, and the differences in uh, Abood between um, uh, political activities and uh, and representational activities of a union. Those categories don't really line up. He says under the Pickering uh, public concern category, um, under Pickering, those the, even even when an employee is speaking on a matter of public concern, that can be overcome when there's a significant government interest. Um, but in Abood, there's no such thing. When someone, when, uh, um, when it's a union is, is, uh, dealing with, um, political speech, purely political speech, then regardless of the, uh, significant interests, uh, they can't, uh, uh, charge the employees for that. So he says that doesn't line up on that side. And on the other side, he said under Abood, non-members can be forced to pay for collective bargaining, um, even if that public bargaining goes to uh, a matter of uh, of public concern, and so he's so saying on either side, the Pickering and Abood just don't don't really line up right. So he says Pickering can't really can't really be used to justify the Abood line. Um, he also says it's not clear that Pickering should apply to compelled speech. He says there's a difference between um, punishing someone for their speech and and uh, and uh, um, punishing someone for not speaking something that the employer wants them to speak. And he says it's not clear that Pickering should apply the same way to both these type of the cases. But then he goes on to, to, uh, to say, well, what if we apply Pickering to, um, the, the Abood case and see, uh, situation and see if it, if it fits. And, um, and he argues that it just isn't isn't a good uh, good fit. He says that much of what happens in collective bargaining is clearly of public concern, and he runs through a lot of examples of kind of highly salient political issues that are involved in the public um, collective bargaining process. And one of those is uh, is budgetary concerns, where where it's uh, frequently been an issue, especially in states that have had uh, um, uh, budget crises. Uh, that uh, public employee salaries and pensions and things like that have been a uh, a major um, issue of concern. Um, uh, in uh, electoral politics. Um, but he also talks about a lot of other issues. He uses as education as example, as an example, and talks about a bunch of issues that are often subject to collective bargaining agreements that are also uh, highly uh, controversial um, political issues. For example, um, debates about uh, seniority-based pay versus merit pay, or the allocation of uh, certain teachers to low-performing schools, uh, tenure protection, discipline and teacher discipline and dismissal, the use of standardized tests to evaluate performance. Those are things uh, that he says are highly, they're clearly uh, things of public concern, but are still under, um, uh, included within uh, collective bargaining. Um, and uh, and so, so he says basically that that uh, Pickering doesn't really uh, justify the line in, in Abood. So, um, having concluded that he, he thinks that Abood is is is, um, 
is is not sound. He goes on to talk about uh, stare decisis, and that's just a, that's a fancy term for uh, for adhering to precedent. The idea the courts um, should should uh, be um, averse to uh, to overturning precedents and should have a, a strong um, uh, thumb on the scale in, in favor of of, of um, sticking with uh, prior opinions. And he he points he he says first that when dealing with constitutional cases, stare decisis is that is weakest as opposed to, for example, a statutory case because there the court is the only. Um, entity that has the ability to change things that Congress can't step in when it's a constitutional rule set by the court. Um, and then he goes through factors that the court considers when determining whether to overrule a prior precedent. And he, 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 he outlines five factors. One is the quality of the original reasoning. Two is workability. Three is the consistency with other lines of cases. Four is subsequent developments. And five is reliance interests. So how, how much people have kind of, um, shaped their, uh, their, um, uh, their actions and relationships in reliance on the previous legal rule. Um, he runs through each of these saying, as far as quality, he, he says that the Abood decision failed to properly consider First Amendment interests, so it just isn't a good opinion in that respect. Workability, he says the line between chargeable expenses, those are the the uh, representational fees that, that um, unions are allowed to charge as agency fees, and non-chargeable, that's the political expenses, that line has been very difficult to draw. And has resulted in a splintered Supreme Court opinion trying to provide guidance to lower courts on that. Um, and he says also that in practice, for a non-union member to challenge the amount of agency fees they've been assessed is a daunting and expensive uh, undertaking. And so, so it's just not not a um, not workable in that respect. Um, as far as subsequent developments, he points to the enormous growth of public sector employment spending. So it's become a much more salient political issue in the time since then. And then consistency with other, um, lines of cases. He says that this is, uh, this, uh, the Bood case is a First Amendment anomaly in not using a heightened form of scrutiny like all other areas of First Amendment law. Um, and he, he says to, he argues that this should, should be compared to cases about compelling employees to support a political party, um, which has a long um, tradition in uh, American history, uh, but where the court has stepped in and, and policed that uh, stringently, uh, unlike the uh, uh, people being compelled to uh, support uh, unions' activities. And then finally, he talks about reliance. Um, he, he recognizes that there are a large number of negotiated contracts uh, that that uh, um, were made um, under the uh, Abood regime that has existed for the last 41 years. But he says that you can't just, uh, the court can't just allow perpetual infringement of people's speech rights because of a contract that's going to expire in a few years anyways, because these are typically short duration contracts of only a few years. Um, He says that also Abood doesn't provide a very clear standard of what's chargeable and not chargeable. So there can't be that much reliance on that. And he also says that the unions have basically been on notice at least since 2012. Now, that's when a case called Knox, Justice Alito, wrote an opinion that was uh, basically indicating that um, he believed Abood should be overruled. And he says since then, basically, the unions have been on notice that this was a strong possibility. Um, and he says that if you're going to look at the reliance uh, interest, you have to weigh the, the transitional costs to the unions in, in kind of uh, learning to cope with the uh, the new legal landscape. You weigh those against what he characterizes as a 41 years of windfalls under Abood. Um, and, and he says that kind of re- reduces the union's, uh, um, uh, you know, claim to be uh, particularly injured by uh, the transitional costs that result. So his result is, 
he says that that unions uh, cannot charge any fees to non-members without uh, affirmative consent from those non-members. So basically, it's an opt-in uh, policy going forward, where non-members would have to opt in to to join the union or, or be willing to pay um, fees charged by the union. So that brings me to Justice Kagan's dissent, um, and she, you know, emphasizes the the drastic large-scale effects of this decision, but she focuses very heavily on the stare decisis, the adhering to precedent point. And she first says, uh, Abood, she, she says, um, it dealt with an important interest in having a well-funded exclusive bar- bargaining agent, but it recognizes there were speech concerns, so it struck a sensible balance between political ex- expenditures and representational expenses. Um, and she says the the interests that were supported by it were this interest in stable la- labor relations relations um the uh the government had uh, interest in having you know streamlined negotiations and being able to uh, to 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 allow to uh, you know function properly um these uh stable labor relations couldn't be uh, um you know couldn't be realized without a secure source of funding for the single union representing the employees and that in order to have a secure source of funding these agency fees are necessary so she says that that was kind of the justification for this uh um uh the the interest in 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 abood um and uh and she says that there's a major collective action problem and this is kind of the the free rider issue the union cannot prefer members to non-members it's required to represent all non-members uh, fairly so it, it is in a situation where it can't really provide incentives um to union membership um to 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 its members so so it creates this major collective action problem where people have a financial incentive to opt out of um paying the union dues and she argues that this actually abood actually fits well with the uh, public employee speech cases so that's the pickering cases she says that the, it, it recognizes that the government has an interest in controlling employee speech um and and she says that while pickering and abood aren't identical um they they both are are striking a balance between the same competing interests and they have a different context um because one is dealing with the specifically with the uh collective bargaining context so justice kagan says that pickering and abood although they aren't identical they actually um fit together uh fairly well um and um <clears throat> she she says that some of the distinctions that justice the leader draws um are based on a misreading of of pickering she says that the division in pickering is not about whether um certain speech is in the public interest but really it just turns on whether it's workplace directed speech and here all of the speech related to uh collective bargaining that's workplace directed speech even if it's uh, things that are of uh great public interest um and she also uh she denies that 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 there should be a significant difference between restricting speech and compelling speech as uh, justice alito suggested um and said actually here there's even a lessened First Amendment concern because this isn't compelled directly compelled speech. It's only compelled subsidy of of, of another body's speech. <clears throat> um, and she says the, the really the key question here when, when talking about the government's interest in these cases is is the government's interest directed at the workplace's efficient functioning? And here it clearly is. So she says that that's a, that's a legitimate interest that this supports. But she goes on to discuss the stare decisis, the precedent issue more. And Justice Kagan of the current justices on the court, she's the most vocal proponent of a strong stare decisis, of 
of a strong position about adhering to precedents and being very reluctant to overturning a prior precedent. And she knows that just the, the whole idea behind sorry decisis behind precedent is that sometimes it requires sticking with a wrong decision. And, and this has, you know, there's important reasons for it. It, it allows predictable development of the law and even handed application of the law to different parties. And that in turn encourages respect for the courts and for the, for the, the, the practice of law. Um, <clears throat> And she notes that the Abood case has been repeatedly cited favorably by the Supreme Court, including outside of the narrow area of union speech. Um, and she notes that the uh, political patronage cases, um, they, they, although Justice Alito cited those as an example that, uh, that he said was inconsistent with um, with Abood, she says, in fact, the political patronage cases distinguish between two different types of um, public uh, uh, employees, between people in policy-making uh, positions who can be um, uh, hired in and required to kind of adhere to a party line and, and belong to a political party, and other lower-ranking uh, um, government employees who cannot. And so that this is kind of consistent with the types of lines that Abood is drawing also. Um, and she basically says the only support for the majority's opinion is uh, these two cases, Knox and Harris, from recent years uh, with opinions written by Justice Alito that didn't really – the cases weren't really about this core issue. And here's a quote from Justice Kagan. She says, quote, relying on them is bootstrapping and mocking stare decisis. Don't like a decision? Just throw some gratuitous criticisms into a couple of opinions and a few years later point to them as special justifications. She goes on to say Abood has proved to be perfectly workable. She says, despite this concern over the line between chargeable and non-chargeable expenses, that she's not aware of any current circuit splits over those issues. And she says this reliance that, that the finally, that, that criteria, that factor, that dwarfs all the other criteria. She says there's 22 states plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico that allow these agency fees that involves thousands of contracts and millions of employees. This will probably require numerous emergency renegotiations. Um, and she she really uh, criticizes Justice Alito's uh, characterizations of, of the unions as being on notice due to these previous opinions. She says this goes directly against the court's frequent admonitions to um, lower courts. And here's she she quotes. She says, "Quote: If a precedent of this court has direct application in a case, yet appears to rest on reasons rejected in some other line of decisions, they should follow the case which directly controls, leaving to this court the prerogative of overruling its own decisions." So she's saying that the the court and this is something the court says uh, it comes up um, uh, it's come up m- many times but the court tells lower courts just because you think our lo- our you know more recent opinions have somehow undermined the reasoning in an older opinion if we haven't overruled that older opinion you don't treat it as overruled the supreme court is responsible for overturning its own opinions so they repeatedly tell lower courts that so she's saying you know there's no basis for for telling these unions oh you should have seen this coming um, because Abood was still under this, you know, this, uh, um, uh, under this, uh, this kind of admonition from the court, Abood was still the governing law, um, until the court steps in and overrules it. So, so she objects to that. Um, and she, she concludes with some pretty strong language against the majority. She, she says, for example, she says, quote, the majority has overruled Abood for no exceptional or special reason, but because it never liked the decision. It has overruled Abood because it wanted to. Um, and she also, Kind of characterizes this opinion as weaponizing the First Amendment. Um, she criticizes what she, she uh, characterizes as, as an aggressive use of the First Amendment to kind of um, uh, encroach in other areas where, where it doesn't belong uh, beyond its uh, its core uh, area. 
Uh, I mentioned that Justice Sotomayor had a dissent also. She had a, a very short dissent where she basically just agrees, uh, objects to the aggressive use of the First Amendment in recent years and kind of expresses some regret in joining an opinion a few years back that she re- now regards as uh, as one of these over-aggressive uses of the First Amendment. Um, so that brings me to the end of the six opinions for the week and the final opinions of the court's term for this year. Um, and that kind of brings us to the end of this episode as well. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'll be doing another live stream tomorrow night. That's Thursday, June 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you can always check the Accounting to 5 YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, <clears throat> here's what I had planned. <coughs> excuse me. Here's what I had planned to cover tomorrow. Uh, I was going to quickly preview the seven new cases the court granted for next term on Monday. So on Monday, <clears throat> The court granted seven new cases. I'm going to pre- preview them. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I also want to review a few other significant, significant orders that have come down in the past week. <clears throat> and I'd also wanted to take a brief look back at the entire term as a whole and kind of look ahead at how next term is shaping up um, and what to expect as the court moves into its summer recess. Um, <clears throat> the only question mark right now is is I'm, I'm considering whether I want to uh, dive into the uh, Justice Kennedy retirement uh, tomorrow or not. Uh, I'm not sure yet if uh, if I want to uh, uh, try and uh, address that as well tomorrow. Um, but in any case, that's the tentative plan for tomorrow. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I'd love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at CountingTo5.com, on the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at CountingTo5 or send an email to Mike at CountingTo5.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to 5 YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to 5. <laughs>